Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast for the final uh, main episode of Season 6, covering, of course, the two 8-bit entries in the Legend of Zelda series. Um, Yeah, I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Matt Willoughby. Matt, are you ready to close out our time with this game and with this era of Zelda games. I am definitely ready. It has been a journey. Uh, we always knew that it would be a journey, but um, definitely it, it was better in some ways than we expected and exactly how we expected in other ways. So, uh, But it's been, it's been a notable entry nonetheless, and uh, I'm glad we have come to the end of this road and uh, are looking forward to Wind Waker. The Wind Waker. Yeah, uh, I, next season. Wind so. Waker hype is definitely set in in this house. I, I am very ready. Um, courtesy of our guest for the week, we have we have now two Wii U's, uh, so we we aren't going to have to split one console to play this game, <laughs> uh, which is really great, <laughs> which is amazing. And uh, and yeah, I'm just I'm I'm so ready to get back into that game, Matt. You know, I've been feeling it for quite a while. Um, I've played it less recently than some of the other Zeldas, and uh, and yeah, I'm just I'm ready. I'm ready in my soul for a little wind waker um but of course before we get into that which is going to happen uh two starting two weeks from now uh we do have to close out our time with zelda 2 the adventure of link uh, of course we do that every season uh this season we've done it twice in a rank and recap episode which is uh the one that we're gonna knock out here tonight where we kind of uh get our general thoughts wrapped up and then we rank where this game falls in relation to the others that we have played up to this point uh we always have a third member on these shows uh, to, you know, provide some extra opinions, some extra perspective, um, and of course, to help us out in the event that we have a tiebreaker situation that needs sorting out. It's always better to have three people for those. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in the past, uh, you know, Mike, the detective has been kind enough to uh, fulfill that role for us. But for these 8-bit games, uh, you know, we wanted to bring in somebody who had a lot of historical perspective on uh, on these games, the philosophy behind them and uh, the era in which they were made. So. Just as we did for the Zelda 1 rank and recap, we are more than happy to welcome back onto the show tonight Max Nichols of Bungie to help us wrap up Zelda 2. Max, how are you doing tonight? Hey, I'm good. Uh, Excited to be here because I really enjoyed the one for Zelda 1. I think this one's going to be even better, maybe. Uh, (laughs) For some reason, Adventure of Link is just really interesting to chat about. I think because there's so much to it that is unique to it. Um, so it's, it's always a fun time to talk about this one in particular and uh, be on the pod in general. Yeah. I think it was, it was brought up in the discord sometime in the last week that somehow we have surpassed. Like I, I think adventure of link when you, when you try to break it down just by hours that it would take most people to, to beat it um, about an eight to 10 hour game. Right. Um, <laughs> which means that we have now spent more time podcasting about the adventure of link. Than it would- yeah, and, and certainly longer than it actually took us to play it. So I, I just think that's so interesting. You're absolutely right. Like, um, 
this game has has kind of uh, it's given us no shortage of like really interesting things to talk about and to try and pick apart and um, kind of a wide variety of opinions about a lot of the a lot of the decisions that it makes and um, a lot of what it kind of ends up being as a final product. And I know we talked a lot about that in your in your first appearance um, in this back half of the season. But, uh, you know, uh, there's been a lot of game. Uh, to play between then and now we've got the final chapters of the game and you know having beaten it and and kind of gone through that whole experience you know before we get into the the bulk of this episode max i'd i'd really love to hear just kind of generally um i don't know like what was the what was the back half of the game like for you versus the front half did you find any notable differences i mean anything anything worth bringing up yeah so uh, I think the last time I was on here was about the midpoint of the game, roughly, more or less. And uh, I actually enjoyed the back half of the game a lot more than the front half. Um, I mean, there's a lot of factors in flight, so it's hard to nail down exactly why that is. Um, <laughs> but I think a lot of it is that I, I basically, it took me a few hours of play before I got really used to the conventions of the Adventure of Link, like, what should I expect and when? How does it work? Like, how does it, how does it, how should I approach its combat? Um, what expectations should I bring with me when I go to a new dungeon or a new area? Um, and it, so it took a little bit to kind of calibrate all those things uh, and essentially get used to the game. And then once I did do that, um, I was able to enjoy it uh, a lot more. Yeah. And, you know, I think that uh, for reasons we'll we'll get into as we kind of talk about this more a little bit later in the episode, I think Matt and I are pretty much in the same place. But uh, one thing is is definitely for sure, and that is that I never would have expected um, to have as complex of an opinion about this game as I really ended up with. I I really felt like um, it was going to be a pretty a pretty one and done, like one note sort of. Like, yep, that's exactly what I was expecting out of it situation. And very similar to Zelda 1, and in some ways even more than Zelda 1, uh, that that really did not end up completely being the case. Uh, and of course, you know, we just had a whole a whole huge batch of two-hour episodes with a variety of people where we were <laughs> able to hash all of that out. Um, you're definitely right, Max. That something about this game just lends itself to long-form conversation uh, where you just really kind of dive into, you know, hypothesis and analysis. And yeah, it's been... Been a, it's been a really, really great back half of this season, honestly. Like picking this game apart has been has been really enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, we have talked so much about this game, and I think that there is really a lot, um, a lot of really good pod that has come out of it, right? I think that there is so much to talk about because it is such a unique, such a different form of Zelda, such a different form of game. Really, it's a, it's a different format of game than either Linda nor I have ever played ever. So like it, it checks so many new boxes that the, the whole experience was um, really fresh and, um, jarring in some ways, and uh, it it just had a lot to talk about. And one of the things Linda and I were saying when you know we were trying to debate how to have these episodes not be as long, because you know we don't want to burn people out and we don't want people to get bored, right? But I don't think that we did, and I also think that there's not too much of a way to trim it down without shortchanging the game. 
in in its due because like we have a lot of things that we talked about that we don't like or that we disagreed with the design choice or blah 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 but all of that required context because we didn't want to just come out and say i just don't like this game because that's not true and it requires more discussion than that like it's i don't like these things for this reason here's what i think could have been done differently and like trying to provide context around our opinion instead of just you know coming across as now this game is just not good and i I don't think that that's true so um yeah i don't really think there was a way to have shorter episodes and i think it was all well worth the time investment and i hope everybody agrees yep Yep, that, that, that's always the hope. And uh, just the feedback we've gotten in our Discord over the last few weeks, uh, you know, it, it definitely seems like everybody has been enjoying where these discussions have led. And I don't think that the topic has overstayed its welcome. So, uh, But of course, all good things must come to an end. And uh, the end is what we shall find by the end of this episode tonight. So going to be a good time. Can't wait to get into it. Uh, let's go ahead and get the housekeeping knocked out, and then we'll dive headfirst into this massive conversation. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly reexamination of the Legend of Zelda one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week we play a new section of a Zelda game. Then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, and be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are very greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod to get access to our Discord channel, write in listener mail, vote on what game we play next as our patrons just got finished doing, uh, and much, much more. Additionally, one of the benefits that uh, Master Sword members uh, and above on our Patreon receive is that we read their names every week here on the show. Those legendary individuals are... Kelso, Chris, Tiffany, Daxel, Patrice, Darknuck, Brian, George, Mike, Dylan, Allie, Lennon, Kolku, Rowan, Josh, Nick, Keep It Going, Dante, Gep, Brittany, Davey, Haru the Mighty, Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Tyler, Ben, Daniel, Nick D underscore TV, Christian, Jonathan, Hyrule Interviews, aka Max Nichols, Garrett, and Drew. These are the most legendary of individuals. We could not make this podcast without their generous support. Uh, this list is kind of growing recently, Matt. We've got we've got a fair amount of new names that are kind of cropping up here. We do. We've got new folks uh, hanging out in the Discord almost every day. Uh, new folks getting their names read. If you want to join any of that fun and action, we uh, always have at least one, normally many, Great conversations ongoing on the Discord channel in which you can get some uh, true inside look, not only at the pod, but at some uh, off t- off mic talk from uh, Cody, Josh, Max himself. Uh, lots of stuff going on and uh, always worth it. So for as little as one dollar a month, you can get in on that action if that sounds fun to you. Yep, absolutely. You know, I like to believe that a little bit of this, uh, a little bit of this, um, this new membership is uh, is thanks to our partnership with Zelda Universe. Um, I feel like we've gotten, uh, you know, a, a big increase in engagement ever since we started hosting our videos there. So uh, this seems like a really good time to once again mention that all of our podcast episodes are available day and date on the Zelda Universe YouTube channel. Uh, we are very thankful to Zelda Universe for uh, being very gracious partners and allowing us to host our content there. So. 
Absolutely. It's been wonderful. And I hope that they uh, have enjoyed and appreciated our contribution there as well, because we sure love being a part of it. Well, lots of them keep coming on the show. So I feel like <laughs> I feel like they probably appreciate it. The evidence <laughs> seems to all point to, yes, they enjoy us. So <laughs> you got to hope so anyway. Cool, cool. Well, without further ado, let's get into the Sacred Realms recap, which is the uh, section of the show that we bring up once per season, sometimes twice. Uh, and we break down the uh you know all the major areas of the game that we just got finished playing we talk about plot dungeons items music and then at the very end we rank and review this game against the other games in the series that we played and just before we get into the sacred realms recap i'm going to go ahead and reread the ranking as it stands just so that you all have it in uh in the back of your mind as we go forward the ranking currently is as thus Number six, The Legend of Zelda. Number five, A Link to the Past. Number four, Link's Awakening. Number three is Skyward Sword. Number two is Ocarina of Time. And number one is Breath of the Wild. So with that said, let's get into part one, which is uh, the plot, where we kind of discuss the story that this game was telling us and how we generally feel about it. Um, and Max, I'm going to I'm going to kind of let you go first here, because uh, I, I think that uh, I think that there's actually quite a lot to get into in this in this whole section. And uh, I know we had a fun time chatting about this with Zelda one. So take it away. How did you feel about the plot and the story of Zelda two? Yeah, yeah. So Zelda two. Um I think it deserves kudos for basically uh, bringing story to the Zelda series for the first time, really. Like the the difference between Zelda 1 and Zelda 2, even though Zelda 2 is still by modern standards very light on story, is is enormous, uh, right? Like just the amount of text, the amount of characters, the, the complexity of the plot, even though it's still pretty simple. Um, you know, there's two Zeldas. That's complicated, right? Uh, and... Um, in a lot of ways, it kind of laid the foundation for how fans viewed Hyrule as a land um, and the history of Hyrule as like uh, like the flavor that kind of they look at it with. Uh, I talked a little bit about that in the last episode, so that's, that's I won't get into it too much. But um, uh, but yeah, I think that's kind of the big contribution here is that like, oh, this is a this is a land where people live. There are towns. There's stakes to the conflict. Uh, and it introduced concepts that are that go forward throughout the whole rest of the series, like there being multiple Zeldas and Ganondorf or Ganon being resurrected as a danger or a thing that can happen. And the Triforce, there's three pieces to it. Uh, and when you get all three of them, you know, it's a little bit unclear in this game exactly the mechanics of it. But, you know, special things happen. Um, even the Triforce crest on the hand uh, first appeared in this one. So there's just kind of a lot, a lot going on here outside of the core gameplay loop that that set the tone for the series going forward. Yeah, I, I think really where I came away, uh, or th- th- I guess the opinion that I came away with was that I actually I really enjoyed the story that Zelda Two was telling front to back. Like you know, you're you're definitely correct, Max. The the trappings are pretty simple. Um, there's not a whole lot of you know narrative or exposition or anything that's that's kind of 
portrayed in the game. Um, there definitely is more than in the first one, but uh, there's just enough to provide kind of the outline of a really interesting story. Um, that kind of combined with the the truly massive little uh, narrative intro paragraph that's in the in, in the in the game manual. Um, those two things together really, I think, tell a very interesting little tale here. And uh, it's very easy for me to be excited about it for a lot of the same reasons that you just mentioned. You know, um, a lot of things that I love about later Zelda games and stories are introduced here, like you said. But I, I do think that the story itself is actually like even what even when you put to one side the lore um, and, and the, you know, all of those fun little canonical Easter eggs. Um, <clears throat> I think that, uh, just the story itself, like it's very simple. It's very archetypal, you know, save the sleeping maiden, go to, you know, go to these palaces, place a stone in each palace, do that whole thing. Like, I, I think that even though that is a very simple story, um, I do think it's got some, some very effective, big general fantasy vibes and tones to it. Um, and for that reason, if for no other reason, I do find myself kind of imagining a lot what this game would feel like if it was like, if it existed in the modern day and it had kind of room to flesh out just the story elements a little bit more. Um, I think that there's, you know, I, I think that this, this game and this story really have a lot more room to be able to do that. Whereas I feel like Zelda one, um, is so archetypal that, I just don't know if there's enough meat on that bone really um, to make that transition if anybody ever wanted to. Uh, this game, I feel like would like it, it would be a lot easier um, to do that. I, I think you could actually get uh, you could flesh this out into an even more grander and more interesting story. But um, of course, we're talking about the game that we we actually have here. Um, and I think that it's effective in all the ways that it really needs to be. Um, one thing that I really love about this game is that in Zelda one, I never really felt like the kingdom of Hyrule, as it was referred to, was anything resembling a kingdom at all, you know? Um, yeah, it, it really it really felt more like the like the the barren wasteland of Hyrule or the ruins of Hyrule or whatever. Uh, and uh, in this game, Hyrule definitely feels like a kingdom. It feels like um, a civilization, you know, um, and, and I I think for that reason it has a little bit of extra character than it otherwise would have if, uh, you know, if we still didn't have like NPCs or towns or whatnot, uh, which is a good thing because I think that, uh, you know, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, like the overworld itself feels very barren to me and feels very uninteresting in this game. So um, having having a little bit of extra interest in in terms of like towns and NPCs and stuff does help to like offset that just a little bit. I don't think it covers the distance entirely for me, um, but it does help. Like without that, this game really would have just felt way too empty and I, I wouldn't have been nearly as interested in it. Um, what, what about you, Matt? Where'd you kind of land with the story of this game? The story... I appreciate that we do have more of a story, right? I know that this game being made in, what, 1987? Seven. Yeah, 1987. Damsel in Distress was, you know, pretty easy run-of-the-mill. Um, and I guess this is more a complaint about the character of Zelda than the story, but so I'll save it for that, actually. Um, I, the story was, was good, I think, and I think having... Um, the 
Triforce of Courage be a piece to collect after we just spent the last game collecting the Triforce of Wisdom and we stole the Triforce of Power off of Ganon's dead body. Like, I, I think there was a cool continuation that happened here that you don't see from a lot of Zelda games. Even any, the only other game I can think of that I have personally played that is a sequel is Majora's Mask being a sequel to Ocarina of Time, but there was not a lot of story continuity there outside of the search for uh, Navi. And the, um, like, seeing this story in many ways be a continuation of the previous story from Legend of Zelda was really cool. Um, Everything you said about having a more populated Hyrule, having a more um, engaging and full place you know, full feeling place because of NPCs, because of towns, because of all the things that make a kingdom a kingdom. All of those were really, really great additions. Um, so I think that for a game that was made in the time that it's made, they did a great job of having those story elements. Granted, almost all of it is outside of the game in the game manual. But again, mm-hmm. product of the time that was normal. So, you know, I don't want to knock the game for that because th- that is how it was done. That's how it had to be done. So I think that that um, works well for the time period that this game was made in. I want to circle back to, yeah, yeah I, I like, and, and real quick, Max, sorry, I just want to get one thing in real quick, and I'm sure you'll have a lot to say about this as well, but I want to talk about this game as a sequel. Um, kind of putting to one side how we feel about its story as a standalone product. I do think it's very interesting to talk about this game being a direct sequel, which is something that we really don't get a lot of in Zelda, right? You know, we know the we know the timeline of all of these games, and every now and again we know that a game, uh, you know, a link to uh, Link's Awakening is a direct sequel to A Link to the Past, for instance. Um Majora's Mask to Ocarina of Time, as you mentioned, and then in – I wouldn't say it's a direct sequel, but A Link Between Worlds is definitely a, a you know, a, a years later sequel to A Link to the Past. Oh, yeah. Uh, in, in Japan, actually, they called A Link Between Worlds A Link to the Past 2, or rather, you know, Kamigami no Triforce 2. Um, so they, they explicitly called it a sequel. In Japan. And, and that was its release name. Yes. Like gotcha the, on the packaging cool which actually makes sense because even a link to the past as we kind of said in that season in japan had a you know had a different name than uh, than the western release um so yeah kind of is appropriate that a link between worlds would follow suit but yeah so anyway we do have uh we do have direct sequels in the series but even all those other examples i feel like we know that they are direct sequels to previous games but the narrative doesn't spend a whole lot of time really dwelling on that. You know, it's always referenced kind of obliquely. Um, and I feel like that's because in the modern era or even, you know, I guess the N64 era is no longer the modern era, but like <laughs> at a 20, certain 25 years ago when Ocarina of Time came out. Yeah, that's been a minute. Okay. So yeah, definitely not the modern era, but like, um, moving on from kind of the eight bit era, I feel like there was an intentional effort being made on the part of these game designers to make it so that the game and its story were approachable, regardless of whether or not you had played uh, the previous entry, you know, Yeah. and anything else, like any Easter eggs that you might pick up having played the previous game were just, you know, icing on the cake, you know, it was just a little something extra to find and to know. Um, this game really does not 
do that at all. This game directly references a lot of stuff from The Legend of Zelda, um, and especially the narrative material in, in the manual uh, is is very directly referencing of things that we did in the previous game. So I think that that actually makes this game kind of an anomaly in the series as a whole. Yeah, it's it's interesting because one of the main plot threads, if you can call it that, in this game is the threat of Ganon being resurrected by using the blood or the ashes of the person who defeated him, you, Link. So, like, there's a, a, a catalyst for the plot in Zelda 2 is the events of Zelda 1, which is just really not how it's ever done in any of the other sequels in the series. TBD, whether or not Tears of the Kingdom kind of breaks that streak, because um, I have somewhat of a suspicion that that game is actually going to uh, reference much more heavily the events of Breath of the Wild um, you know, than an older Zelda game would have done for its immediate predecessor. But uh, but yeah, I think even though that's not something that happens in this series a lot, I think in this game it is really effective. Um, and again, it, it, it's really just because um, I, th- I think it's able to be done so simply here because a lot of this story was being communicated in – out of game places like manuals and and stuff like that. So, um, so you know, like when when all of that stuff is doing the heavy lifting, it's a little bit easier to kind of draw those direct narrative lines from one game to the next, right? Because all you like all you have to do is just write it in paragraph form of like, hey, after Link did this thing, you know, then he went and did this. There is a something that said was like, um, you know, you have to read the manual for a lot of the story. And while that is still true to get a lot of the details of the story, compared to Zelda 1, the the amount of story you can get just from in-game content is vastly more. Like you can actually get a picture of like who who is the enemy? Um, what is my goal? Uh, who are these people I'm helping? Like, what is the kingdom of Hyrule? Like you can kind of get all of that from the content of the game um, without ever looking at the manual unlike with Zelda one, which I think is a huge step forward in just a, a year or so. Just, there's only about a year between Zelda one and two. Yeah. And I'm actually trying to remember now. I know that uh, townspeople, for instance, will drop little like narrative bits and, uh, you know, little, little sentences and snippets of conversation that kind of allude to the story that's happening. Um, of course the game over screen is pretty explicit about the consequences of failure. Right. Um, <laughs> When you get the game over and it says, hey, guess what? You died. Ganon returned. Um, <laughs> Sucks. Yeah, exactly. So um, we but- made that we made that little paste with Link's blood and Ganon's ashes <laughs> and then spread it on his bones. <laughs> so gr- that's the, still the paste of resurrection. Yeah. Still to this day was one of the most <laughs> gruesome images I've Nasty. seen in a Zelda game. Nasty. But yeah, I agree. Like, I think that there's there's some very clear advances being made in in the way that the designers uh, even thought to try and communicate story in game versus the last one. So um, I definitely really enjoy seeing those steps being taken here. And again, it's one of those things where this game was so different from Zelda one in terms of it's like minute to minute gameplay that I think having that connective tissue really does go a long way towards making it feel, um, you know, connected narratively to the game before it and and making it feel like it's a part of the same world as the legend of zelda was so um yeah definitely definitely kind of really appreciate that element of the story for sure um but uh yeah i don't know i think i think i definitely 
felt a bit more excited about the trajectory of the story and the back half of the game than the front half. Um, like once once we really started going to new areas of Hyrule and um, seeing some locations with a little bit more character, you know, old Kasudo Town, uh, for instance. You mean old Katsuo Town? How about old yeah, Matt, Kasuo? That one. Kasuto. Yeah, I mean, how many how many different ways can I pronounce Could that? Could be any of them. Who's to say? <laughs> we don't know. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, getting to the final dungeon, which I think we, we mentioned in our episode last week, I felt like was a really great climax to this game. Um, in, in particular, just loving kind of the symbolism of the final boss, which is literally just Link fighting his shadow and having to overcome that in order to gain the Triforce of Courage. I think these are all interesting concepts and it's all interesting story material. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Question for you two. What do you think, like if you were to summarize it in one line, what do you think Zelda 2's story is about? I think that, uh, I think that Zelda 2's story is about Link becoming worthy to wield a section of the Triforce. I think that Zelda 2's story is about Link resurrecting the sleeping princess Zelda by means of becoming worthy to wield the full Triforce because he supposedly already has wisdom and power. Yeah. So, uh, good answers. Um, (laughs) the thing, the thing I had in mind when I asked was this story feels like the stakes are personal, like personal scale in a way that most other Zelda games are not. And especially Zelda one wasn't because like, you know, townsfolks will say stuff like save the kingdom hero or whatever, but like, it never really feels like the kingdom is in danger. Right. Yeah. I, I would say that the, the themes of this story that like kind of underpin the events of the story are that it's about link maturing as a hero. Um, which comes through in some of the like Emmanuel content. He's like, he, he comes of age and the crest appears on his hand and Mm. he starts learning how to cast magic and not just use swords and tools. And, uh, the, the final boss is against his own inner demons manifested as shadow link, dark link or whatever its real name is. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, There's definitely a very story about link growing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely like a very intentional um, difference in the way that he's portrayed in this game versus the first one where in the first game, you know, it's definitely, I think meant to be communicated that link is, is young, you know, like a young child and um, definitely very new to like a life of adventuring or whatever. And I think in this game, you're right, Max, uh, it really is telling the story about link coming into his own as a warrior, you know, and as a coming into his own as a hero. And I think that both through the narrative that's told to us and shown to us and the um, the extent to which Link's abilities upgrade in this game and the extent to which you, the player, learn to get better at controlling Link in this game, I think that that story is actually told successfully. I, I think that they successfully portray Link's journey from the one thing <coughs> to the other. Um and I think it deserves kudos for that. You know, I think that there's like I, I think that that's a, a tricky balance to pull off and to really make people feel, especially um, in a game that's a little older like this and doesn't have things like, I don't know, cutscenes or, you know, a bit more heavy lifting narrative devices to, yeah. to sort of fall back on. 
Um, but with all of that said, I feel like we've kind of already journeyed into one of our subsections of the plot, which is where we discuss the main characters at issue in each game. Um, we're already talking about Link and about this version of Link. So let's just go ahead and continue that conversation. Max, how do you feel about this portrayal of Link the Hero? Um. I am I'm actually rather fond of this portrayal because it feels like it's the first time we see the link that in my mind is still like the truest version of link to me personally which is the link to the past and link's awakening version of link. Uh you know, he's got he's relatively he's proportioned like an adult human person <laughs> unlike Zelda 1 where he's like this weird chibi squished sprite person. Uh and He's still got kind of the the old more old school character design look to him. Um and just there's like a piece of key art, like there's like the the adventure of Link, Link art. Uh probably you could Google that and you'd find the one I'm thinking of, but he's like walking towards the you know, the towards you in the image, um, kind of purposefully with this, you know, the sword at his side. Uh and I I am just overall fond of that portrayal of Link. And I think as a character for this era, it was like a very fleshed out, very realized character that like people were already invested in because of the success of Zelda one. Um, so I'm assuming most people who played Zelda two played Zelda one first because Zelda one sold a lot more in Zelda two. Uh, so I think there's just a lot going for this version of link. Also, he's a mage knight, right? Like he's, he's, he's a wizard. That's cool. That's definitely like a paladin, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely something that we don't see uh, as being a part of Link's character really ever after this. I mean, Link has access to magical abilities in most games that he appears in, but that's never really the focus of his arsenal. It's always just like kind of one element of all of the different tools that he has to play around with. Um, And in this game, it really is the whole thing. Like, you know. Anything that is not Link's baked-in combat ability besides the sword techniques, upward thrust, down thrust, um, everything you're acquiring for him in this game um, from an ability standpoint really, really is – it just comes down to magic and to spell work. And I think that that's actually like a really uh, – that's a, that's a thing that really separates this Link from all of the others in a really interesting way is Link – the battle wizard, you know, like I, I think that that's just really fascinating. Yeah. Um, f- for me, when I think about link and who link is as a character throughout my journey with Zelda, this is a very different link in a lot of ways, mostly because my, uh, primary experience, uh, is with more of the 3d versions. So I- I'm able to have a more, personal feeling connection is this a hashtag not my link situation matt no not at all actually (laughs) if you'd let me finish you'd see where i'm going with the thought oh my bad my bad come on i'm sorry Um, i have traditionally had a harder time um connecting with uh 2d sprites but um i actually did find myself especially in the last quarter or third of this game feeling more connected to this link than I did to even the legend of Zelda's link. Yep. Um, I felt myself like being, uh, joyful in the growth of the character and in my 
control of the character and in the rewards that come from the time that we have spent together growing uh, through this journey. And much to the point of uh, that both of you made, especially you, Max, about, you know, Link maturing as a hero. I think it's also about the player maturing as in their ability to overcome the obstacles that are so numerous and prevalent in this game. Um, and I think that is really probably the one thing I could say in in pro to the insane difficulty of this game is that while it's insanely difficult, it is rewarding to overcome insanely difficult things. And um, it is rewarding to see yourself adapting to those challenges and overcoming them uh, as you progress. So um, all of that attributing in the game to Link's growth as a hero and personally our growth as as the controller of said character. So I think that there's a lot of good to be said about this Link Um that he is known throughout the realm already as the hero of Hyrule is also interesting. Some of the characters do kind of react to that. You know, you're worthy of help or, um, you know, rest here and, you know, stuff about like people having confidence in Link to be able to save the kingdom. Um, all of that is a very interesting carryover from last game that contributes to a more mature feeling Link and a, a link that is still growing um, in in this journey. So yeah. I, I definitely would say that I actually very much enjoyed this portrayal of Link. I don't love the sprite, to be honest. I, I just there's some proportionality mostly about the shield and the tininess of the sword and like some of the other things that didn't quite do it for me. I think we talked a little bit, a couple episodes about how the art style isn't our favorite. And I still think that that's true. But um the character himself, I think, is um, well, well done, well portrayed and uh, does the growth schema very well. And, you know, it's so interesting to me because I think when you when you when you think about the stakes of Link's struggle in this game, it's very different than most uh, stories that we get in other Zelda games. Right. Usually Link is working to ward off the impending arrival of some great evil. Right. Uh, you know, looking to collect like grow enough in power to be able to fight ganon before ganon can take over the world or some variation of that story right like um for the most part with a few notable exceptions um link is always working uh proactively to try and ward off some impending cataclysm in this game it's telling a much more aspirational story where Link is uh, Link is very much going on a journey, um, not necessarily because he needs to work proactively against some some impending doom situation, um, but he's just trying to he's trying to find a solution to to a problem. Right? He's tr- we're trying to wake up the original Princess Zelda, um, but again, like what what we're doing is we're going into dungeons and facing enemies that are not there necessarily to defeat us and take over the world, but are there to challenge us and to, um, and to be necessary obstacles so that this character can grow enough to obtain the Triforce of Courage. I think that that's a really interesting story, and I think that it's something that I would love to see future versions of Link explore a little bit more. You know, um, I would love to see more games 
that are a bit more introspective about Link and his goals and um, what it really means for him to grow into being a hero, not because he is doing it out of necessity, mm-hmm. but because he's challenging himself and, yeah. and you know. Yeah, I think yeah. most Zelda games tell the story of Link becoming a hero, right? And the most direct comparison I can really make, honestly, is like Skyward Sword, where Link has to become worthy of wielding the whole Triforce, which he does in, a, you know, part of that is, is this game, right? Becoming worthy to wield the Triforce of Courage. And exactly to your point, though, Lyndon, every single other time it is I have to become worthy to wield the Triforce so that I can stop something. In this case, it's I have to become worthy to wield the Triforce so that I can resurrect the Sleeping Princess, which we are given no context as to why that's important other than just like it's not good for <laughs> yeah other than just that it's like a nice thing for us to be yeah doing, exactly you know? <laughs> so the, there, there's no context about like the kingdom of hyrule is gonna fall into anarchy and chaos if zelda isn't awakened and becomes the ruler of hyrule because the king's dead and apparently the zelda that we saved in last game is nowhere to be seen so like if they had given it that kind of context where it's trying to prevent the kingdom from falling into anarchy and chaos i think that changes a little bit but because we lack that context and it really seems more like a this is a side benefit of getting the whole triforce uh or i don't know it it feels different for sure there is uh one one more just observation there from me which is that um if most Zelda game stories are like, they're like Lord of the Rings, right? Like the, the land is in danger. Go on a quest with the MacGuffin to save the land um, using the power of plot device. Uh, then this is more like the Odyssey or a, a grail quest that a Knight of Camelot would go on, right? Like it's a personal quest to better themselves or, um, you know, improve something for themselves that they go out and do. Uh more personal, more intimate in that way. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's, it's very blatantly kind of stated through the, the King's letter to, you know, the future hero about prove yourself worthy. Right. I think that that is a very good, and and I like your, um, your parallel to Knights of Camelot on a quest, right? Like that, this, this is very much knight errant link, uh, in the kingdom doing knight errant. And and I like that. Well, (laughs) one thing that I think is so interesting about it though, is that, Depending on how you want to interpret it, because the other big half of this story that we've been that we've kind of talked about a little bit is that um, we are trying to not get dead so that <laughs> don't die so that Ganon doesn't come back. Like that's the risk. The, the only risk here is that we might die and Ganon might get resurrected. So when you look at it that way, this version of Link is actually kind of playing with fire in a lot of ways right yeah maybe he should just hole up in a castle and yeah. like not die so that ganon can't come back the safest thing to do for the kingdom is sit in a locked room until, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that would be funny uh this because- is actually very selfish it's like it's like it's like really thinking back on it. Maybe taking a boat to another continent really would have been the best thing for everybody here, Link. Uh, just saying. Just get out of Dodge so and, Ganon can't come back. And I'm gonna say the enemies are all so difficult that, like, yeah, the risk was actually very real here. So 
Yeah. Especially because um, your third <laughs> section of the game is Death Mountain, where you have some of the hardest enemies in the whole entire game. Yeah. Yeah. Come on, man. Maybe we don't do that. Thankfully, <laughs> my uh, my my wide my wide repertoire of game overs are not canonically binding. And <laughs> Ganon was never actually resurrected, we which is good. We didn't we usher canonically the timeline splits when Link uh, fails in Ocarina of Time. So. Exactly. Theoretically, I was you created many new branches. Of <laughs> See, I was going to say I was going to say, Max, luckily, we didn't usher in a second downfall timeline by uh, dying here. Well, but it sounds you know, like it sounds, sounds like, like maybe we did. It sounds like we ushered in like maybe 30 or 40 of them. <laughs> <laughs> so that's great. That's fun. Yay us. <laughs> Woo. Sorry, everybody in Hyrule. We died a lot. It just is what it is. Uh, going back to your point about the sprite work and everything, though, Matt, I think and this gets into game play a little bit more than plot but i agree that uh you know the sprite is not necessarily my favorite in the world i like it well enough for its portrayal of link but i do think one thing that i never really felt like worked for me was the whole uh standing and crouching position situation yeah um in order to deflect uh projectiles that are on like different planes you know like as a mechanic like it works it's not like it's broken or anything but i just never felt like I never felt like I got super good at being able to tell on the fly which position I should be in, you know, Um, like sometimes it's pretty easy, but other times I don't know. I just think there's 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 not enough visual difference between those two states and and between like the height of like a head level projectile versus like a knees level projectile. Right. And it becomes even more difficult whenever enemies start jumping around like in the last dungeon where we had those bird knights that were throwing crap all over the place or when enemies are on a different plane, like if they're on an elevated block or two elevated blocks, they're still shooting from a ground level position, but the projectiles traveling on a separate plane. So like, maneuvering around that was was something that was definitely very difficult for me to get the grasp of for some reason and i never got super good at it like i i got good enough to uh reliably defeat enemies that were on my same plane and didn't jump around but past that adding in variables there was not something i was ever great at adapting to maybe that's just a me problem I don't know. I don't think it's just a you problem. I I, I felt pretty similarly. Um, does anyone have anything else that they want to say about uh, narratively this version of Link before we move on and talk about? Uh, I guess actually no other characters, but we're yeah, well. Gonna, I mean, we have one other character to talk about, sure. in name only. Yeah. Um. I I do want to say that I am very glad that this is. I think the last instance or maybe a link to the past is the last instance where we see um, the Judeo Christian uh, kind of um, glyphs and um, artwork on Link's character. Um, I know that as we progress into later games, we get more traditional looking Hylian shields and uh, less, uh, you know, Judeo Christian kind of uh, iconography throughout Zelda. And I think that that is a good thing. Absolutely. Yeah. For, for narrative building, if for nothing else, right? Because yeah. at that point, it becomes less about just uh, not uh, not. I, mean, I think appropriating is a bit of a strong word, but yeah. it becomes less about writing the coattails of um, you know very, real world religion, of, of like common fantasy, yeah. you know, and it like starts to develop a bit more of its own visual and cultural identity mm-hmm. after this. I like my fantasy to be fantasy, not uh, not utilizing real world 
iconography stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, Like I I want to feel like I am in a separate world and the prevalence of crosses or, you know, even the cross being a obtainable item within this game was like weird to me that they could have easily done just like a totem instead of a cross (laughs) and an amulet. Yeah. I mean, I I just, I'm glad that Nintendo decided to depart from using real world iconography. For sure. Yeah. This was the last game where Cody Davies could come on and choose Jesus, Jesus Christ. Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, we stand Jesus Christ in this household, uh, but also maybe not in Zelda. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I definitely I, I, I feel like Cody definitely wins the award for like most out of the box and like generally unbeatable Z targeting. Like <laughs> Like, cool. Yep. You got it, Cody. Got it in one. Good for you. Yeah. So, and yeah. man, that episode was full of eggs. <laughs> Good golden eggs. That's a, well, that's a, that's Cody Davies for you right there. Uh, the Barack Obama of Australia. Exactly. That's what Notably, the other one I was thinking right? of. Yeah. Man, that was hilarious. So, gosh. Uh, okay. So let's move on from Link real quick. Uh, obviously, we have, I think, even less to talk about in terms of our other two main series characters in this game than we did last game. Um, Ganon, certainly, because we don't. We don't even see Ganon in this game, except unless you get a game over, excepting the game over screen and then the constant threat of his resurrection that kind of hangs over everything. But uh, um, I don't know. I mean, do we even have anything that we can really say about this? Like I was going to say that Zelda as purely a damsel in distress MacGuffin, even more so than Zelda in The Legend of Zelda, I think, because at least in The Legend of Zelda, we're talking about Ganon right now, Matt. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Hold on. I'm going to rewind that. Uh, Ganon. <laughs> you, hit, you hit the bumpers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Scrolled back a few screens. And there we go. And we're yeah. back. <laughs> um, Ganon. No, I have nothing to say about Ganon. Cool. I, I do think there's a little bit of interesting here about Ganon because we see that even when he's gone, there is a an organized effort from his remaining minions to try to resurrect him. Right? Like to the point where they have spies and towns and stuff. So that's interesting because it's the first time Ganon has been shown to be like an intelligent creature, right? Yeah, mm, that's fair. Like, and he's followed by intelligent creatures, not just monsters ravaging caves in the Death Mountain area. Well, and in some ways that gives us kind of a precursor to the Yiga clan in this game. Oh, uh, look at you making connections. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, I, that is actually a really good point, Max. I think it it adds a dimensionality to Ganon, the king of evil, king of monsters, blah, blah, blah. Um, that was pretty good um, when you dig down a little bit past the surface. So thank you for that call. It was a good one. And it is nice because the concept of Ganon kind of coming back and being resurrected from actual death is something that is an element, especially of more of the top down games, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. um, Ganon in the downfall timeline is kind of constantly in a state of having died and, you know, just being resurrected, being resurrected between games, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely really nice to kind of see some narrative beats around that here. Um, but moving now on to Zelda, which we actually do see a version of this character in this game. I think the only thing that I would want to say before I let you finish the point that you were trying to make a second ago, Matt, is that um, I, I just from a lore standpoint agree with you, Max. It is cool to see the genesis of Zelda as like a dynasty, you know, um, I, I appreciate that groundwork being laid here. 
and past that, there's really not much more to say about this Princess Zelda than there was the one in the last game, right? You know, we get our same thank you, you saved me, you're a hero. Um, this one is a bit is a bit freer with smooches. So she's very free with the smooches. So but that does bring up a point because we have this recurring conversation around which Zelda and Link pairings are, exist in a romantic state of being and which ones are just friends, right? Um, and I don't know. I kind of want – I'm interested to know where you guys think this pairing stands. Well, I, I want to say out of the gate that Link uh, in Adventure of Link is a definite ladies' man. He visited those uh, town healers we'll call them generously uh many times in every village so link is uh spreading hit that love around the kingdom spreading that link love around the kingdom <laughs> and uh so good good on you link uh we we don't we don't slut shame on this podcast so good good for you and um it is interesting to me it's very sleeping beauty right like Disney Sleeping Beauty, right? right? Prince Charming awakens the princess with a kiss and then they fall in love at first sight and blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I feel like that is kind of what Nintendo was trying to go for for some reason. I don't know why. Um, I guess it works. Uh, sure, it works. Um, but what I was trying so, to say. Oh, go ahead, Max. <laughs> I was going to I was going to give my hypothesis about how the story ended up this way. Um, which is basically, I think that they started from a place of like, okay, we want, uh, we want to invert the trope. Instead of going and collecting pieces of the Triforce, you're going to dungeons and delivering something to them. And they're like, okay, so we have these dungeons. They need, they need to be ancient, right? There have to be ruins. They're temples. Um, okay, cool. So you go to the temples, but like, okay, so now we need to come up with a story about why you go to ancient buildings. And we want you to rescue a princess, right? But, oh, crap. The story has to be something about ancient shit. I guess we'd better come up with a story that involves an ancient princess that you're rescuing. And I think that that thought process, that's my guess. I don't really have quotes to back this up, but that's my guess of how they ended up on this really weird two different Zeldas. One of them is an ancient Zelda that's been asleep for a thousand years. And the other one isn't even mentioned uh, sort of thing that they have going on here. Yeah. And as a, as an ending to that thought, did we just start like a Game of Thrones-esque struggle for power by resurrecting this Zelda while the other Zelda is still very much alive? Because I feel like that's what we did. So I don't think we actually helped the kingdom of Hyrule in any way, shape, or form. We probably just started a civil war. So I mean, other Zelda is on vacation for this entire game, so I don't know. Maybe maybe it's, maybe it's time for ancient Zelda to step up and I don't know. <laughs> What's going on with the spirit of the goddess Hylia right here? Is she inhabiting both of these Zeldas simultaneously? Ooh, good questions. Also, maybe, maybe <laughs> the Legend of Zelda's Zelda is not on vacation. Maybe she's actually like ruling the kingdom because we don't actually go to like the capital city of Hyrule. We go to North Palace and Great Palace, which are not like Hyrule Palace. So maybe Zelda's actually, you know, doing her princessly or queenly duties and we just like revived a usurper to the throne <laughs> so <laughs> that's another another way to take that. i do i do think it's a very it's a very 80s portrayal of a damsel in distress that she wakes from a centuries-long slumber and then immediately feels like doing some romance like yeah nobody feels that way when they first wake up in the morning come on it's not it's not not accurate so there you go yeah. um so what i wanted to say uh and i know you were trying to move us on but what i wanted to say about this zelda as well is that 
you know, damsel in distress was sort of the, um, beeline plot point of last game as well. You know, kill Ganon, get, collect the Triforce, save the princess was like the, the three things from last game, right? This game, it is save the princess. And at least in the last game, Zelda's portrayal did something to proactively protect the kingdom and the Triforce, right? Like it was off screen, sure, but she impacted the story in a way that this Zelda literally does not do this Zelda is purely a MacGuffin and to see the character of Zelda relegated to that always bugs me. Um, I, I said very much the same thing in a link to the past re- rank and recap is when they relegate the titular character of the series to purely damsel in distress, save the princess. I, it just, I don't know. I don't love it personally. Yeah. I mean, she did do stuff off screen before the game, right? She like saved the Triforce from being acquired by her brother who was under control of the evil vizier or whatever. Uh, I'm still oh, I'm, st- I'm still really I'm still really fuzzy on a lot of those details, by the Same. way. I need to go back and like reread the manual again, because like I remember that there was I remember Zelda had a brother and I know there was an evil wizard in there somewhere, but I think he died. And like, I don't know, it's all it's it's kind of a it's kind of a big fantasy salad of (laughs) of of things happening. Yeah, I know that. And my recollection of it is, you know, basically Zelda had the knowledge of where the Triforce of Courage was hidden and she chose not to disclose that to her greedy brother who was under the control of the evil wizard. But what this storyline indicates to me is that even had she disclosed that location to her greedy brother, he would not have been able to get the Triforce because he wouldn't have been able to pass the challenges because he wasn't the chosen hero. So like her That's silence, true. her silence, while admirable, was pretty much meaningless because all that would have happened was her brother and the wizard would have gone to try to get the Triforce of Courage out of the Valley of Death and they wouldn't have been able to do it. So I don't know. It's just like it feels like the story contradicts itself by making the Triforce unreachable by anyone other than the chosen hero, but trying to set Zelda up as some kind of heroic character for not revealing that information. Yeah. So let's move on from Zelda real quick and talk about the other main character of this game. And of course, this is a concept that, Max, you brought up in our rank and recap from last season, which was the introduction of the concept of Hyrule itself as a main character, uh, which we referenced several times in this season and will probably continue to do for uh, for the remainder of this podcast, um, just because I I think it's it's so true. Um, Hyrule is such a is such a a living, breathing and important part of our experiences with these games. Uh, So talking about the land of Hyrule as a character, Max, I'm going to send it to you. How did you feel about that in this game? Uh, Yeah. Okay. so I have said a little bit already in the earlier this episode about how I felt like our perception of Hyrule was really broadened by Zelda 2. Right. Zelda 1 gave us the Hyrule that is wild places, forests, streams, rivers, mountains. Um, Zelda 2 gives us a lot more of all of that, but also gives us civilization, townships, graveyards, um, you know, fire mountains, uh, mazes that are built across entire islands. Uh, so just what Hyrule could be, what players of this game 
often children playing this game could imagine um, was just so much more vast after playing Zelda two than, than it was in Zelda one. Um, and I assume that a lot of Zelda one players probably, you know, they were one to two year, a couple of years older maybe than when they played, when they played Zelda two, if they were playing along in real time. Um, so they probably felt like their, their favorite game was growing up with them. Uh, and Hyrule did that too. Hyrule got bigger and vaster and more full of possibility. Yeah. Uh, so I'm actually very fond of, of the portrayal of Hyrule in this game. I think to me, it's a case of uh, two steps forward, one step back. The two steps forward are definitely one, like I said before, the 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 kind of populated sense that we get of Hyrule being an actual kingdom in this game. Um, and then the other step forward, which I haven't mentioned yet, is kind of how much I love the characterization of the palaces in this game. I think that they strike a very different tone than the dungeons in Zelda 1. Um, those were very much more crypt-like than anything else. Uh, and they definitely felt very much like a system of underground labyrinths, you know, whereas the palaces in this game really do feel like that. They feel like palaces. They feel grand. They feel immense and ancient. Um, that is definitely something that we get a lot more of in our treatment of dungeons in later Zelda games. Like, you know, every now and again, we're in like a, a volcano cave or something. But like for the most part, we're in ancient palaces or ancient structures or like big grand scale areas um, that have like a lot of antiquity and flavor to them. And I feel like this game actually does a pretty good job with what it's given to work with from like a graphical standpoint of kind of communicating that feel around these spaces. Um, You know, in particular, I think as you go through the game and they start getting more complex in their layout, uh, that really kind of helps to sell that fiction. And a lot of it too is just that a byproduct of these being side-scrolling experiences is that they just feel taller, right? Like they feel somewhat more like grand and, and cavernous, like you're like you're walking through a vaulted ceiling space, you know, like an ancient cathedral or something like that. Um, and so I really enjoyed that um, quite a lot. I, I felt like that was a big step forward. Um, in, in terms of um, in terms of dungeon spaces, uh, this, the one step back, obviously, is the same thing I've been talking about the past few weeks, which is that the overworld itself, I still just have have very little interest in. Um, it has very little character. The fact that we're so zoomed out from it makes it feel uh, very kind of static. And, uh, you know, um, it, it just does not have a lot of uh, shading and flavor. Um uh, definitely not in the same way that Zelda One's overworld did. So um, I, I think I, I'm still going to give it a net positive, right? I, I still think this portrayal of Hyrule is an improvement on the one that we saw in Zelda One, but that overworld thing is a pretty major caveat for me. Yeah, you don't really engage in in kind of a gameplay sense with the world of the greater, broader overworld of Hyrule in this game, right? Like when you're on the overworld, you're not doing anything you're just traveling you're playing oregon trail but without the you know the <laughs> without <laughs> without dysentery yeah <laughs> um you're watching an icon move in a map instead of controlling a character moving through a forest uh so yeah it does have that that distance 
Yeah, I I don't have a lot to add. I feel like you both covered my main thoughts as well. Is I, I don't love the re- sense of removal that I had from the landscape. And this is something we talked about with Josh a lot where, you know, I think some of it can be chalked up to our inexperience with overworlds like this, which were apparently pretty prevalent within this time period of gaming in general, specifically in Japanese games, which of course Nintendo is. Uh, but it's just a, it's a type of overworld exploration that neither of us have ever really engaged in and I didn't love. And I think that um, for me, it is not a style of overworld exploration that I want to see again or that I feel was effective. Um, I do, as you said, appreciate the scope and I appreciate NPCs and towns and your note about palaces feeling more like uh, temples and palaces instead of crypts is is well put. So yeah, I, I just want to give a solid agree around the table um, to to the things that have been said. Cool. Uh, you did. You mentioned there's one of the things I've been wanting to talk about. So now feels like a good time to interject with it. Is the kind of the context, the historical context this came out in. Um. So you've already heard a little bit from. Uh, Josh about how he thinks the overworld was partially inspired by Dragon Quest. Um, and I don't, I don't know if that's actually true or not. Like I haven't really examined the timing of it or anything or found quotes about it, but as in a general sense, the games uh, at that time, Zelda was thought of as an RPG, right? If people made lists of genres and games that went into genres, Zelda went in the same list that had final fantasy one dragon quest, uh, chrysalis games where you leveled up and were about exploring a world and maybe had more story than like a side scroller at the time would have. So to a certain extent, a lot of the things that adventure of link does um, that are different from Zelda one is moving towards the expectations of the RPG genre at that time. It had a big overworld it had towns, it had NPCs, it had more of a story, it had spells it had leveling up. Like it was an RPG um, which I think would be inaccurate to call a modern Zelda game an RPG uh, by our modern standards of what an RPG is. Um, but as I mean, as recently as like 2000, like when Majora's Mask and stuff was coming out, people still talked of Zelda games as if they were RPGs. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that's kind of interesting. And uh Related to that, at the time, it was received really well. Uh, But maybe you should jump in with your thoughts first. Yeah, I was going to say, and it's wild to me that we can look at a Zelda game, really any Zelda game, and and call it even remotely an RPG because it's it's so classically action-adventure. And maybe that's just my context of being a huge Western RPG fan. I know that, you know, more, you know, JRPGs and things like that are, are different, but... um. Other than the experience point leveling system here, there is like no aspect of RPG to me. And um, I guess like in the strictest sense, role playing game, when you're trying to put Link forward as the characters or or as the players, um, uh, what's the word? Proxy, the player's proxy within the game. Like maybe, but 
it just doesn't have any of those aspects. So, uh, you know, obviously I was a little too young, even back in 2000 to be really following a lot of this stuff, um, with its technical definitions and whatnot. But to me now in 2022, thinking about trying to call any Zelda game an RPG just blows my mind because it's just so classically action adventure. Well, does that apply to this one as well, though? I would say this is not an RPG. Mm -mm. Like, I, I don't think that... I think that the, like I said, the only part of this game that is RPG-esque is an experience point leveling system, which you have in a lot of action, a lot of action adventure games also. So, um, yeah. so I don't see this as RPG or even RPG-esque personally. This is a super interesting topic to me. I won't spend too much on it, but basically if you try to define a genre, like what is, what does the word genre mean? Like what is a genre category? It basically comes down to it is a collection of tropes or conventions, whatever word you want to use for it, um, that occur together often enough that the audience gives them a name and uses that name to communicate what kind of experience it is. Um, and for a lot of the the history of the RPG genre, like the in the 80s and, and 90s, um, any the only games that had leveling systems and the only games that had stories where like lots of plot was happening um, were RPGs. Like you just didn't have leveling system outside of the RPG genre in most games. Um, and you didn't see a lot of emphasis on story outside of the RPG genre. So whenever a game came out that had either of those things or both of those things, it was thought of as an RPG today in modern gaming. Every game on earth has a big story and leveling systems, right? Like there's always some big progression system in any genre now, um, so the genres now are very different than they were back then. So I think uh, what, what we're talking about now is the natural byproduct of like over time as games have become able to be bigger and more complex um, and more intentional in their in their specificity of design. You know, we've kind of started to see um, we, we started to see the rule sets around what we consider to fall into what category uh, become more specific Right. Um, like now we've got games like The Witcher 3, you know, and, uh, you know, Skyrims and all these other games that that are definitely RPGs. And we're able to call them that very um, confidently because they have this massive like wealth of systems and experiences which kind of play into that. Uh, whereas, you know, back in the day when this game was created, it really is just like um, it's all kind of a mishmash of all these various things, you know. And I think that probably contributes a lot to why the labeling of the Zelda series might have been difficult for some people in the early years and why it might have been kind of stuck in that action RPG camp when in reality it kind of really wasn't. I think nowadays uh, anybody who is kind of, you know, a gamer plays a lot of different kinds of games would be able to pretty accurately um, name some big differences between all these experiences, which kind of, you know, and give some reasons for why Zelda probably doesn't qualify under that umbrella anymore. Yeah. Um, but that, that definitely has not always been the case. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I think that that about ties up my thoughts on the plot of this game. I think let's go ahead and get into part two of the Sacred Realms recap, which is best dungeon, where we each kind of give an award for what we thought was the best dungeon experience in this game. Um, and I'm going to go first and say that uh, even though it is the final dungeon of the game and I, I, I think in the past I might have made an argument for why that shouldn't be allowed to be given this award 
But then the more final dungeons that we play, the more I kind of realize that good ones, like really good ones, are sort of an anomaly in this series. Um, and so for that reason, I feel completely fine in giving that award to the Great Palace, which I thought, uh, as I said last week, was a really excellent dungeon. It had an it had a wonderful balance of like exploration and and scale. Um, it has an immense layout, a pretty complex layout, very easy to get lost in. Um, but I found the balance of combat and the difficulty of enemies in that dungeon to be very appropriate. Like some dungeons I felt were just way too chock full of very difficult enemies in very difficult spaces um and didn't have enough exploration or vice versa like there was some fun exploration but the enemy you know the enemy situation was just not great uh this dungeon i feel like strikes a really nice balance of all of those things um and then of course ends in not one but two really great boss fights so uh giving my award to the great palace uh max how about yourself i think i'm gonna go with three eye rock palace um was the uh, i guess the second to last one right yep yeah so with, with barbara yeah yeah barbara um apparently there's some translation shenanigans that if you look into them enough you realize barbara is named vulvagia um it's like the same same name i guess in J- japanese really uh, that's crazy <laughs> so <laughs> um anyway so i like this one because it's it felt like it had um, it was, it kind of had a good balance where I felt powerful. I felt well equipped and I felt like the dungeon was throwing a lot of challenges at me that I could overcome with my power and my, you know, my good equipment and stuff. Uh, So that's one thing, right? I felt equipped to engage with these challenges and I felt cool and powerful and skilled when I overcame them because they were hard enough. Um, that it had that that kind of element to it, um, I and uh, I like the boss, right? The it's it's boss feels more like a what we think of as a Zelda boss today, where it's got it's a big room size thing. It's there's some spectacle to it. Um, it's part of the environment. It's not just a flat room. Uh, you know, for some reason, this dragon had some sweet drapes hanging above you know it's lava pit but uh it really it really went for the uh the canopy (laughs) bed situation um so i like i like that about the dragon uh and it had had many bosses right i I think this might be the first of the dungeons that had many bosses but yep it is it's uh, actually the only one that has many bosses yeah you fight two of the rebanax uh and then it had a lot of whiz robes or whatever they're called in this one sorcerers that i always enjoy fighting um so yeah, it kind of just hit. Oh, and last but not least, it has a puzzle. You have to jump down a pit and turn on your fairy spell in that middle screen um, before you fall through. And like that, that's actually something you kind of have to think outside the box to, to think of to do, um, which is a classical Zelda puzzle. So, and it's definitely high marks. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that, and it's interesting to me that that wasn't something that was tried in other different ways in more of the dungeons. I mean, you have fake walls in a few of them, um, but I think past the what you're talking about, that's really all that there is. And I don't know. I think that they're even even with uh, the tools they had available. You know, I think their ability to do extra things of that nature was probably there at the time. And so it kind of has me wondering, like, why that wasn't leaned into just a little bit more. 
Yeah. Um, so for mine, I, I'm actually kind of split here. Like the two dungeons you both mentioned, I think are great for all the reasons you said, especially Max, your point about first mini boss, first like boss fight that felt like a traditional Zelda boss. Um, the, the use of mini bosses, like all of that stuff I, I love about three eyed rock palace. But I think my favorite one was probably ocean palace. Um, because, on a personal note, it was the first dungeon I felt like I got through on skill, not on abusing rewind. And it it marked a point for me in this game where I was becoming more comfortable with the mechanics and the combat to a point that I, I actually noticed progression in myself. And I I like... Barbara as a boss more than I like Guma. I think I like the layout of hidden of three eyed rock palace more than ocean palace. But for me, ocean palace was kind of a turning point in the game personally, where it was still extraordinarily difficult, but it didn't feel like I was beating my head against an unbreakable wall anymore. And so I think for that reason, Ocean Palace gets my view, gets my vote because it was a turning point for me personally in this game. Yeah, that's that's really great. Um, and I completely agree with you, Matt. Max, this is something I, I kind of wanted to talk to you about, because in the episode you appeared on earlier in the season, um, you definitely mentioned that you were experiencing some of the same frustrations as Matt and I were around feeling very not comfortable with the combat um, and with the flow of enemy encounters and like feeling confident in your ability to overcome them. And um, I know for Matt and I, we both felt like at different points in the back half of the game, we sort of reached that place where we had kind of like we had ridden the learning curve to a point where we were now comfortable with it and actually feeling somewhat competent um, in in all of those things. And the dungeons, of course, are the the primary place in which you're developing that skill, right? Uh, in the overworld, you've got like enemy encounters and whatnot, but the dungeons are really where you're where you're getting good at this stuff. And so, I wanted to ask you was your was your journey in the back half of the game towards feeling more comfortable with your ability to like go into a dungeon and just do well there? Like, did that expand quite a lot as you got towards the end? Yes, uh, it definitely did. Um, now I, I, the caveat of course, is I'm playing on easy mode, right? I'm playing on a, a modified ROM of the game where I do more, uh, enemies deal less damage and I do more damage. Um, but I can still confidently say that I did get a lot more comfortable with stuff like fighting an iron knuckle and not getting hit, right? Like, which is, you know, it wasn't just that I was tanking it and surviving without losing very much health. I was actually getting skilled enough to not get hit anymore. Um, so I definitely had a lot of skill growth in that way uh, that made it made it much more comfortable to just... Um, I reached a point where I, between those two things, I wasn't having to worry about uh, the battle of attrition that a lot of this game was before that, right? Like, I didn't really have this thing where, like, oh, no, if I go through this room and I got hit two times, I'm not going to have enough health for the next room. I kind of just got to maintain um, my health, generally, as long as I wasn't failing miserably, uh, which I still would do occasionally when I'm fighting, like, a blue iron knuckle or something. It would take out a lot of my health or whatever. Yeah. 
Um, well, and I think I think a lot of that too comes from in the back half of the game the fact that you have one a wider variety of spells to lean on um, to kind of like you know it it becomes a, a situation where you're able to leverage that spell inventory to deal with these situations more effectively but also through leveling you now have the magic capacity to support being able to do that you know um and i think that 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 really contributes a lot towards the back half of this game having been a lot more fun for me than the front half um and so i completely agree with what you're saying max um i want to get back around to this line of discussion uh in our general thoughts towards the end when we get to our when uh, uh, to our ranking and, and final thoughts and all that um but i do want to go ahead and move on real quick to the next few parts which i think are all going to go pretty quickly let's get into part three which is usually best i we don't really have items in this game like we i mean just we best do. spell we, we we do but they're all pretty passive in there you know in, in terms of like what they're doing for us so uh we're gonna call this one best spell i'm just gonna ask each of you starting with matt which spell you found to be the most useful and relied on the most uh jump jump was not only useful in traversing the world and in traversing through caves and and almost all of the palaces it is an extraordinarily useful spell to assist in the defeat of blue iron knuckles or the bird knights or you know whoever else like i I felt that um your best defense was avoidance and uh jump made that a lot easier so um yeah that's my vote cool how about you max i am also going to say jump um I kind of have a theme here, actually. I tend to choose the the uh, movement and positioning items uh, when you've asked me before. Um, jump is cool to me because, A, you get it early on, right? So it's one of the spells that becomes cheap enough that you can kind of just use it when you want um, later on, uh, which a lot of the other spells don't have. Like A lot of them are expensive enough right up to the end that you feel a little bit hesitant to just use them willy-nilly. Um, so you feel like you can use it a lot and it's versatile. It's useful for both navigation and combat. Um, and in a way it actually unlocks a whole new dimension of combat, right? Like normally you can only really jump over something that's two squares tall. Right. Um, and these are pretty tall rooms we're in most of the time, right? There's usually a ton of space that we just aren't able to have any gameplay in because our character can't get up there. But if you use jump, suddenly the whole room is now a gameplay space, um, assuming the ceiling's tall enough, of course. Uh, and it's useful against a variety of different enemies. Uh, it can make the difference between a boss battle being hard or, you know, really hard. <laughs> um so I think it's just it's just interesting in a number of ways, uh, more so than most of the other spells, which are generally kind of one note things. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, this is so difficult because if I'm going to answer this question in terms of like what spell was I using the most? It, I mean, it was heal, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I abused heal. Right. I mean, like, I, I, I think that's hands down probably the most generally useful spell in this game simply because of the way that the health economy works in this game and uh, obviously yeah. I've, I've got some gripes about that and i've mentioned them before Many. and uh, you know i i think that for that reason 
the heal spell really is just essential to uh to being able to to succeed in this game like outside of just becoming a god which i'm sure a lot of people who love this game and play it a lot are at this point and and rely on that a lot less just because they're great at you know dishing damage and not getting hit you know but that's not me and so i i definitely was using heal quite a lot um just in terms of the spell that i thought was the coolest outside of that i i really like the fire spell um i always like shooting fireballs at things and I, I really appreciated that that was useful against a decent selection of enemies i feel like in games where we get like the fire rod and stuff like that it tends to be pretty selective in terms of like who you can and can't use it against and uh, this one definitely does have some rules in that regard but like a lot of the enemies that you fight are susceptible to it and so i thought that one was was pretty fun mm-hmm. um i do i do have one more thought about the heal spell just generally which is that Again, I I think that the health system that was generally happening in this game is not – it's still just not my favorite. I don't love it. I can see a future in which like – like I'm imagining a Zelda game that functions a bit more like a lot of the hero mode Zelda games do where there are no heart pickups, you know? And healing has to come from other sources. And in that game, if you did have like a magic meter the way that you do in a lot of the more recent Zelda games, um, I think it would be cool to have access to a heal spell that was able to like refill your heart containers at the at the cost of a decent amount of magic. I think that that concept in and of itself uh, could be executed on a little bit more successfully in a more modern game. And the loop there could be a little bit more fun. In this game, I think it's just it's such a hassle because especially early to about two thirds of the way through the game, you just don't have enough magic to really be able to use heal and also other things that you want to use. Like you've really got to actively not use other stuff because you've got to save that energy to heal your life force. So, yeah, I want to give an honorable mention um, to the shield spell just because it gives you that awesome looking red tunic like hmm. i love the i love the color change that it puts on uh link and like all of his items so honorable mention to shield spell just because your uh what, what do you call it the your drip is on point whenever you use it yeah but i you know i will say again at the very end of this game once you've got the magic to really support it Learning how to use all of these different spells in conjunction with each other, depending on whatever need may arise in a particular screen of the dungeon, I thought that that was a really fun mechanic. And um, I actually came away not necessarily feeling like this was worth the trade-off of not having traditional items like boomerangs and bows and arrows and all that kind of thing. But I do I do think that the spell inventory in and of itself is a cool thing. Yeah, and I think it's a cool concept as well. I, I agree that it does not replace items for me. Um, I even didn't necessarily think that Breath of the Wild's limited section sele- selection of permanent items, you know, the remote bombs and the magnesis and stuff, outweighed or outperformed the collection of quest items like boomerangs, bone arrows, uh, hook shots, etc. Like I love. I love those things about Zelda. Um, So having those not be in this game was definitely um, I noticed I noticed their absence quite a lot for sure. Yep. 
Totally agreed. Uh, let's move on to part four, which is best music, uh, where we each give an award for what we thought was the best musical arrangement in the game. I'm going to go first and say that I still didn't I, I still don't think I enjoyed any piece of music in this game more than just the base dungeon theme. The Great Palace theme is cool. The overworld theme grew on me a little bit the further that I got into the game. Still don't completely love it. But um, but yeah, the 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 palace theme is really good. It, it's I actually would say one of like the it, it's in the top 25 percent of Zelda songs to me. Um, I, I just think it's like a really well composed piece of music. And anytime I stepped into a dungeon, it kind of gives you that uh, it kind of gives you that immediate um, upping of intensity, you know, it really makes you feel like, okay, time to go, time to get in and do a dungeon, you know? And I think that that's what some of the best dungeon themes ever made in Zelda do. Um, and I think that this one is, yeah, I, I think it accomplishes that task really well. Um, Matt, how about you? What's your favorite piece of music? I'm going to just give you an upvote on that and call it good. Cause I agree. Okay. Also it's use as the super smash bros theme for, uh, the Zelda, Dungeons, Hyrule Castle, and, you know, whatever else in Super Smash Bros. is a big plus for me. Cool. How about you, Max? It's a tough call between the dungeon theme and the Great Temple theme, the Great Palace. Uh, they're called Temple in the Japanese version. They, they wanted to call them Palace in the U.S. version to avoid religious connotations, which is ironic considering all the other religious connotations in this game. Yeah, seriously. Um, but uh, anyways, yeah, of the two, I do think I land on the same as you two, which is the actual dungeon theme. Um, and I also love it in Smash Brothers. So there's I was- a small chance. That, so they have the great temple map in Melee, which is just the final that's based on the final dungeon. Did you notice that the final dungeon is gold, right? In Adventure of Link? All yeah. The tile set is gold. Yep. In the Japanese version of this game, all the dungeons had the same color or the same um, tiles and generally the uh, fewer colors to choose from. So in the Japanese version, I believe the great temple is gray, like a lot of the other dungeons are. And that's why the Smash Brothers map is graystone. If they based it on the US version, that Smash Brothers map would have looked very different. And that's that's so interesting to me because uh, as as was noted in last week's episode, the Japanese version did have some graphical enhancements over the Western version, especially in the overworld, right? Like the portrayal of like lava uh, and the way that like water moves on the ocean were notably more complex. So it's interesting to me that there was kind of that give and take, right, where um, the Japanese version had some some better sprite work and some better animation done for some things. But for other things, the palette was a lot more limited. Yeah, and it was because of technical differences between the Famicom disk system and the NES is what drove a lot of those like ups and downs. Some things were easier on one versus easier on the other. Uh, I was going to ask you a question, Max, uh, while we're talking about music. This is something I've been wondering the last few weeks, and I could have Googled it and gotten an answer, but I wanted to wait until you were on the show and ask you this. Um, did Koji Kondo do the musical arrangements for this game? No. I think of the first six Zelda games, this is the only one that wasn't composed by Koji Kondo. I think you can really tell that when you listen to this music. Like, it definitely, it has uh, characteristics to it that are uh, markedly different than anything that Koji Kondo really ever did for this series. 
Agreed. Like it sounds utterly unlike what a Zelda soundtrack sounds everywhere else to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have to put in an agree on that one as well. So all that is to say, Koji Kondo is still the greatest of all time. <laughs> Definitely missed him here. The GOAT. All right, let's get on to part five, which is best bloopy trail normally. And I'm actually going to suggest that the way that we should maybe handle this section is to say that I, I would I would advance the theory that the only true bloopy trail in this game is the pursual of grinding out your stats, which is magic, life and um, attack. Right. Yeah. If anybody feels that that's not true, let me know now. I think that that's accurate. The only other thing you could possibly say is the getting of the magic key, which you don't actually need, but um, is so helpful to progression. It's sort of a bloopy trail, but not really. Yeah. Magic key is a good call out. I mean, I guess the other one is the heart containers and magic containers, but those are essentially stats, just a different type of stat. Well, and so, magic yeah. containers are necessary because you have to have all eight in order to get the thunder spell, oh, which you have to have right. in order to beat the Thunderbird. What a what a nightmare if you get to the Thunderbird. And you don't, like, you don't have Dude, that. I can't imagine and that. I would have raged. Such a big trail of <laughs> you have to go back and do. That would have been awful. Out. <laughs> so knowing that we all kind of agree on my on my basic premise here, my question then becomes, do we all feel like the 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 grind to kind of fill out these stats was appropriately fun as like a secondary consideration for this game? No. OK, <laughs> I mean, that's just my opinion. I was just thought we were voicing opinions here. No, so. I mean, I asked and you answered. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I expected. Yeah, like. uh, yeah, I mean, I think it. I think it can be fun. Like there were times when I enjoyed taking a few minutes to like finish off a level. Uh, it's kind of a change of pace. Do I think it was as good as it should have ideally been? No, there should have been some there should have been optional stuff there should have been exploration you could do like but that's that's partly my bias as a person who likes exploration in zelda games talking <laughs> yeah um, and i want to clarify i don't think that it's a bad system and i don't think it's un, an unfun system i think that it does not replace bloopy trails for me like mm-hmm. bloopy trails are one of the main aspects of most zelda games that we enjoy sinking hours of gameplay into right like that is what keeps you coming back to zelda in a lot of ways is doing those memorable side quests the hand in the toilet the gratitude crystals the you know whatever else you want to call it just exploring breath of the wild to find easter eggs well and even in zelda one like the 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 quest to find hidden nooks and crannies yeah um like yeah old old or new kasudo I was going to say that almost optional. Yeah, I was going to say that Max was like the the biggest thing that the the biggest dopamine rush related to bloopy trails that I got from this game was finding new Casudo town in the woods. Like that was cool. That was a really cool moment, but it was a necessary one. So it's not a bloopy trail because you have to go there. Yeah. And um, I, like I, it's it's stuff like that that this game lacks that is hard for me to overcome my 
prejudice of newer Zelda games having all of these things that this game just does not have. And um, I'm sure Josh is like raging uh, against <laughs> us in his, while he's listening to this episode. But um, I really just didn't feel like this game performed to that to that level of expectation. Yeah, I, I guess a couple spells were optional. Technically, the life spell. <laughs> and the shield spell okay optional. nope uh a shield spell yes i guess yeah, i guess reflect. yes you do not technically need either of those things to beat the game <laughs> but good luck yeah, yeah. seriously reflect I, uh, I thought you meant reflect which is why i kind of di- disagreed but yeah. no your shield itself yeah you don't necessarily but, yeah like it. woe on the person who chooses to to, to to just not get those so and and those spells had associated quests essentially right like right always a little tiny side quest feeling thing you had to do to get the spells. Yeah. I guess my answer would also be that even though I found it to be a fun pursuit to, to try and grind these things out and to fill in those, you know, those extra progress bars and whatnot, like I I don't think that in and of itself, it is a satisfying extra gameplay loop on top of, on top of the core things that you're doing. You know, I, I'm definitely, I agree with you, Matt, I'm really missing a lot of the extraneous exploration stuff that every other Zelda game, including the one before this has. So there you go. Well, with that out of the way, let's get on to the main event, which is our ranking and discussion about our ranking. (laughs) Before we do that, can I add, uh, can I pull a Cody Davies and insert a section? Go for it. Do it. Awesome. Okay. So there were two things I want to talk about. One of them is really short, which is that, um, there's this perception amongst Zelda fans now that Adventure of Link is not a beloved game. That people like they people don't really like it. It's the black sheep of the Zelda family. And in a lot of ways that's true now. But at the time it came out, um, Adventure of Link was critically and commercially successful. Um I went back and I like looked up a bunch of reviews and previews from the time period. I found like old magazine scans and stuff. I enlisted a few people to help me find some of these. So you, you did actually dig up some non Nintendo sponsored contemporary reviews of this game. I did. And, and they're generally pretty glowing. Like this was a triple a blockbuster, like the biggest game of the year. People looked forward to it for a year ahead of time kind of game when it came out. And they loved it. And it was it was lauded as like, you know, one of the greatest adventures you could have on the NES. And it's a vast world you can explore. And, you know, big, you know, there's NPCs and a story to experience. Like it people really appreciated what it brought to the table at the time. Um, and for a while afterwards, for years afterwards, it was I found like some somebody, there's a guy named Mac, M-A-K also known as Game Master Matt, who's probably, he's a bigger Zelda historian than I am. He knows more than I do. Um, and he helped me dig up a bunch of this stuff. And he he kind of showed me that like there were, there were like magazine polls and Nintendo Power, which was just uh, subscriber polls every month about what their favorite games were. And, you know, Adventure of Link was in the top 30 for like 10 years. Um, like many years afterwards, it was still in that top 30 list. And, the same was true in votes in other magazines. So I thought that was interesting <laughs> because it flies in the face of the common 
feeling towards this game. Well, and that makes me wonder if um, actually I, I have a thought on this that I want to get into post ranking. I want to expound on this more. Okay. Uh, but so so remind me when we get there. Will do. Um, and so the second thing I want to talk about is a little bit of a bigger topic. Do you remember last time? I said I wanted to talk about why this game is similar to Skyward Sword. Yes. Uh, why I, do you have to hurt me? Thing. Okay. This is this is not a negative thing. Okay, fine. Um, <laughs> but I do, I'm going to do a little bit of a preamble to kind of give some context for why I say this. So, uh, most games start off with a couple core ideas. Um, it's like the the theme of the game that all the other ideas flow from, um, or the thesis of the game, you might say. Uh, so, the way game dev works is usually like something. Maybe the thesis is a story. Like maybe you're making an RPG or a visual novel, and you're like, I want to tell a story about X or Y. Or maybe the thesis is you are a lawyer, and you need to point out contradictions in trials and then you go and make ace attorney games or you know it could be anything like sometimes it's an art like a vision a visual image people have sometimes it's a gameplay thing um but the way game dev works is nobody can keep an entire game in their head from the beginning right nobody just has a vision pop in that has every element there it's kind of this iterative thing where they they make decision after decision after decision every day working towards ideally a goal that is relatively unfixed. It's not changing. That's like their North star, right? So every decision they make is in service of reaching whatever this North star is. Um, I found some quotes from Tadashi Sugiyama, who is the game director of adventure of link, uh, where he says that adventure of link started off not as a Zelda game. It was originally a, 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 an action an action adventure game or a side-scrolling action game that didn't have the Zelda IP attached to it. And they, their goal was to make a sword fighting game. Um, so that was kind of the genesis of Zelda 2, was they were making prototypes of a sword fighting side-scrolling game. Um, and every design decision they made to an extent at least, was about like how do we how do we make a game that that really emphasizes sword fighting um and then they 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 put zelda on it after like after they left pre-production or whatever they would have called it at the time um they like were like okay we're gonna put the zelda ip on this and then they they of course did stuff to embrace zelda in it um but i think it's super interesting because you can trace a lot of what's weird about Zelda 2, you can trace back to this goal of making a sword fighting game. Obviously, the sword fighting combat, right, in the side-scrolling sections, like, that's obviously about that goal, right? It's, uh, you know, you stand in place, and the way you swing your sword, the timing of swinging your sword is kind of the gameplay, the combat system. Um, but uh, you can also look at stuff like the the spell system and the way they design spells instead of having items is because of this sword fighting goal because their sword fighting system required the use of both buttons there wasn't an extra button to press for items um so what i think happened was they're like okay 
Zelda has this whole thing where there's like items you can get and stuff, but we can't put a, put it on either of these buttons. What do we do? Um, so they came up with the spells that you can cast with select, but it doesn't work super well to have like an action, um, like swinging a weapon or something or firing a bow with the select button. Cause you have to take your hand off of the D pad. Um, so they didn't really want items that are like real time combat items. So they did buffs or status changing spells, which all the spells except for thunder or whatever it's called are right. They're always like this thing that you do that provides a lasting benefit or it refills your health. And it's not really timing sensitive during combat. Um, so like that's because of the sword fighting system being their core goal. Um, and the overworld being an overworld map. Uh, I'm guessing that they were originally going to make just a side scrolling game, like something like kid Icarus or Metroid or something, maybe Castlevania. Uh, and they probably were like, when they decided to put Zelda on it, I'm guessing what happened was they were like, oh crap, Zelda is about traversing a large land. But that doesn't really work with side-scrolling for us. So overworld happens. Um, and there's a million little little things like that you can kind of trace in that way when you evaluate any game. Um, and so that brings me back to my original uh, point, which is what is the only other Zelda game that had sword fighting combat as its primary goal? That would be Skyward Sword, of course. I think it's a it's a really interesting connection to draw. I think with Skyward Sword, it's so fascinating because you still have uh you still have that that whole system. Like, what is the most accurate one to one, uh you know, combat system that we can produce? And then it, it it's in addition to all of these other things that are mainstays of Zelda, right? Like, you know combat action items and stuff like that um and of, of course that's because if for no other reason we have more buttons now yay but uh but it it does make me think like we've talked a lot i know we've talked about this with umax in past games we've talked about it with other folks like i still never exactly come to zelda games for the purpose of engaging with a combat simulator right um, that's never my primary goal in getting into these, into these games. And I, I'm not going to say that I don't think there's anyone in the world who like comes to them for that, looking for that. Right. But if those people are out there, then I would say to them that there's probably other and better franchises to get it from, you know? So, <sighs> I don't know. Like I, I respect I respect the goal and I respect the ambition. Um, I just think that if nothing else, what this is telling me is that uh, it, like it's confirming to me that this is not the pillar around which Zelda in its most effective form should be completely based. Um, and I think Skyward Sword is maybe even like the it's maybe an example that sort of proves that rule to me, which is that even though it has that. And even though it is a huge part of that game, the the most distinctive part of that game, uh, the fact that it exists alongside other enduring, consistent Zelda conventions, um, you know, like it's it, it's fun because it's there in addition to those things. It's not it's not fun simply because it has that, right? 
Right. What do you think, Matt? I I love so I, I want to say that obviously tactical limitations and 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 eras of gaming and coding aside, like a sword fighting simulator based in the Zelda universe sounds really awesome to me. Maybe not as a mainline Zelda game, but as like a Hyrule Warriors offshoot, sort of. Not in the way that Hyrule Warriors did it, because that's more of a Ninja Gaiden like hack and slash. But like, I would love to see a more dedicated sword fighting the way that Skyward Sword did it, because I I do love that concept. I don't think Zelda as a series should revolve around sword fighting as its primary mechanic. I think what you said is accurate, Lyndon, that sword fighting and Skyward Sword being one of my favorite things about that game, it really works best because it is in supplement to the rest of what makes Zelda unique and special. And um, yeah, I I think that that's fair. I, I don't think that sword fighting as a primary mechanic in Adventure of Link works for me. I, I think that that as that existing at the expense of these other things exactly is it's not. not it. it doesn't it doesn't do it for me. You're yeah. absolutely right. Are, are you kind of with us on that, Max? Yeah, yeah. I I, mean, I definitely am. Um, I do want to clarify that I do think Skyward Sword has amazing combat. Probably my favorite of the series. But yes, I, I agree with pretty much everything you guys are saying. <laughs> Hooray! We got Max to say something positive about Skyward Sword. <laughs> Woo! Let's he bookmark liked, it. He, liked, he said a lot of positive things about Skyward Sword when we played that game. I know, but I still have to give him crap because he also... <laughs> this, he, is the, he, this is the feud that isn't actually a feud, yeah. but is nevertheless now like part of the lore of this podcast. Absolutely. We have to keep it going at every opportunity, <laughs> yes. And, and to clarify, uh, Max Nichols and I are great friends, even though we have uh, very... Uh, uh, we have different ideology about that specific game. So there is no actual feud for anybody. No animosity. Yay. Yeah. So no, don't be worried about it. Yeah. We're good. But so that that's super interesting. And I definitely see why game developers at the time, especially given that there was only one game in this series at at the time and they was still kind of being established like what Zelda is. Right. I could definitely see a room of people brainstorming about what their game should be, thinking it sounded really cool to just try and make it the best sword simulator that was like available at the time, you know, um, I, I, I totally get why somebody would think that that's like a really cool thing. But as with so many other, uh, as with so many of the other thoughts that I have about Zelda two, um, it's difficult for me to judge those decisions completely in a vacuum, absent my thoughts and feelings about what makes this series work really well as a whole like what 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 are the reasons that i think zelda is the the mega force in gaming that it is uh and it like i just cannot put that historical knowledge aside and so uh, i can respect the intention uh, i definitely see where that idea has like merit and and a cool factor to it but uh, yeah, definitely, definitely glad that that was not like maintained as the primary thing around which all future Zelda games should revolve. Um, so yeah, th- that, that's just where I'm at with it. Uh, so with all of that being said, we, we've talked a lot about how we feel about a lot of desperate or disparate parts 
of this game, our opinions and feelings about a lot of different things. But let's put it all together. We do that, of course, in part six of the Sacred Realms recap, which is our final thoughts and ranking. And so what I want to do is I want to go ahead and get the ranking out of the way first and then kind of have a a discussion about why we feel it deserves that ranking and then maybe also add some extra nuance on top of that because I know that I personally have some very nuanced feelings about how I got to this uh, determination and and also how I feel about the game as a whole. Uh, So I don't think that we necessarily have – a reason to do the whole system with hands and the lowering of hands and whatnot. Can we all agree that this game is going to come in at the bottom of our current ranking? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, definitely. That's, that's where I'm at as well. So the ranking as it stands now is number seven, the adventure of link number six, the legend of Zelda number five, a link to the past number four links awakening number three, Skyward sword number two, Ocarina of time number one, breath of the wild. I don't think that anybody truly expected this game to fall anywhere else on this list, but I do want to say that even though, you know, this game is now at the bottom of our list and is probably going to remain there. I mean, who knows, but I would be willing to bet it's probably going to stay there. Um, I still came away from this game like once once credits rolled, once it was complete and I, I had finished the whole thing, I really did come away from this game feeling like regardless of all of these things that kept me from enjoying it as much as everything else on this list, I still found a lot that I admire and enjoy about this game. Uh, I, th- there, there are a lot of things that I think contributed to me still having a good time while I was playing it. Um, but yeah, it just, it does, it just does not, I think at the end of the day, hit enough of those main pillars of what I look for in a Zelda game to be any higher than this. Um, Max, how about yourself? Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm, I largely agree with a lot of that. I, uh, I think this is probably going to be the last time you have a recap episode where you don't rate a game at least one step up. <laughs> I think I think you're right. <laughs> Which I think is, is a fun milestone for you to hit. Uh, yeah, I mean, did you want me to go into general thoughts beyond that right now? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, I kind of, what, what I'm looking for right now is just like, so we all agree where this game should be ranked. Um, I guess let's kind of have an overall discussion about the game as a whole product and why we feel it deserves to be here. Gotcha. Yeah, so, I mean, for me, a lot of it boils down to the fact that it is aged badly. Um, I think I think it's interesting, historically, that it was, it was received positively at the time. Uh, and I think that's important context. And I think it's interesting that it, it affected the series in a lot of ways outside of the mechanical, like in terms of portrayal and the writing style and like some symbols that are used afterwards. Um, so there is like cool stuff that happened because this game existed. Uh, but it's, it was never going to be anything other than the lowest game on this list because there are out there are parts of it that are just miserable to play for a modern player right now. And we are living in the year 2022. Um, it's too hard. It's obtuse. It has obtuse. There's the O word. Yeah. yeah. Requirements. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> it's uh it's difficult on too many axes it has harsh punishment for failure it has arcade sensibilities around difficulty design um it's just not a good game by modern standards in any way whereas zelda one still it still was something i think a lot of modern players could enjoy uh without having to like psych themselves up into like a 1986 mindset so yeah i mean no, I, yeah yeah no i mean that, that that's all true and and to me it's kind of a story of frustrations right because even though I I agree with all of those things and I do feel all of those things, there are there is a smattering of I think very well executed gameplay here. Um, I think that even though a lot of it is archaic and overly difficult, and uh, you know it, it's just um, definitely not up to up to par for for what we would consider to be a universally enjoyable game in the modern age. I do see elements of things in here that I I thought were very satisfying. I think the biggest one to me, honestly, I mentioned it earlier, but just like I think that the learning curve of this game is actually really well implemented. Um, And and I think that's that's subjective. I need you to reiterate that. Do you think the learning curve in Adventure of Link is well done? Well, yeah. I mean, like by the time I got to the end of this game, I felt like – I had become competent at it mm-hmm. and like I, I feel like it had given me sufficient opportunity to get better at it and there was satisfaction in the getting better right like I, I think that um, I don't know like I, I think even though it is overly difficult I, I don't get me wrong I think that some tuning is definitely required if we if we want to if we want this game to be the the best version of itself, right? Like I think um, everything you said is true, Max, like difficulty on too many axes, too harsh punishment for failure, all these things. They're all true, but I did at the end of the day get a lot of satisfaction out of getting better at this game. And I felt like the game did give me opportunities to get better, you know? And that's not nothing like I that's, – that's a big part of why I play any difficult game, right? Like on a smaller scale – implemented you know less gracefully of course but like like that's the same reason that people play souls games you know that's the same reason that i played kind of like hyper light drifter and stuff you know like these are all hyper difficult games and the experience of getting better at them is it can can be a very rewarding um you know way to invest your time and I'm not saying that like, you know, like I, I'm not saying that uh, this is a fair game by any stretch of the imagination. But I still got that feeling from it. And, and I've got to give it props for that. But again, I, I have to I have to admit that that is a very subjective judgment. Like this is something that is going to vary wildly from player to player. And given matt's you know tone and asking me that question just now i'm Mm -hmm. gonna pass it to you matt i'm assuming that you disagree yeah i i don't think that the learning curve was well implemented in this game at all because i think that the first dungeon we played was like a pretty good first dungeon and then the difficulty ramped to a million out of the gate and i don't think that you can have that spike in difficulty that early in the game and it be a good learning curve. Um, 
by the end, I totally agree with your point about by the end of the game, I felt like I was there and I felt like I was doing better and I felt like I had learned and I felt like I had grown, which, uh, you know, we talked a lot about at the beginning of this episode, but I don't think it was well implemented because it goes from zero to a hundred so fast. There is no gradient. There's no curve. It's a spike. And I, I don't think that that's good game design. I don't think that that's good at least for the modern time and to max's point it has arcade sensibility which is just incredible difficulty so that you spend more time on it and today it that's not how games are and i don't and i think that's for the better right i don't think that i personally as a near 30 year old person with a job and a significant other and a bunch of other things like I don't have time to sit here and beat my head against an unbeatable wall for 12 hours on a weekend to progress one level. And I, I don't think that that is a good mechanic. I don't think it's a good system by the end of the game. I, I was kind of there, but we talked about it. I think two or three episodes ago, like we got drug along this learning curve by, by the root of our hair kicking and screaming because we just, we had to. And, um, to me, that means that that it was not a well-implemented system. And the thing that makes this complicated is that, again, the version of this game that we were playing had so much baked-in forgiveness. Just right, by virtue because we could rewind. Yeah. yeah. And so it, it is worth mentioning the big caveat to all of this is that I still cannot comprehend playing this game in its original form on an NES cart, right? Like, I, no. I just can't conceive of that. And I would even say that, like, I got so tired of rewinding. Like I, I did, I, and I tried very hard not to crutch on that, especially as we progressed in the last three dungeons, I tried very hard to be intentional about not doing it every time I got hit by an iron knuckle or every time I even died. But I also was not going to let myself game over on Eastern Hyrule and then have to go all the way back over there. And I, I mean, I just don't know. I think Max said it best that the game just has not aged well. And I think that that is a very accurate assessment. So here's what this here's what this discussion really comes down to. The crux, like the 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 establishing premise of our entire podcast is the the judgment that we kind of rendered at the very beginning of all of this, which was that we do not believe that a bad Nintendo made Zelda game exists. Like that was our establishing premise for this podcast. And so what I think the real discussion here is, is not where do we rank this game? Because we all know, everyone knows it's at the bottom. The real discussion is, do we think that a bad Nintendo made Zelda game exists in Adventure of Link? No, I I don't think that they made a bad game. And I think that is evident in the fact that for its time, to Max's point just a few minutes ago, it was hugely successful. It has set up a lot of things that have carried into future Zelda games. It set up a lot of the foundational lore of the Zelda universe. I don't think it's a bad game. I think that it is not a game I will replay. Um, And it's not a game that I particularly enjoyed all the way through. There were things about it that I did enjoy, but I don't think it's a bad game. Um, it's not my 
not my personal flavor of gaming, right? Um, yeah. I think that you cannot say that it's a bad game with how commercially successful it was, how well-reviewed it was at its time. It is a product of its time. It is just the... Like, this is almost the epitome of NES gaming for me. This and the Return of the Jedi NES. That was SNES. SNES. Yeah, I mean, still, same same concept, though, right? Just, yeah. like, yeah, so yeah, yeah, difficult. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, it, this is a product of that time and a product of that um, design philosophy. So, for what it was at the time and, and what it represented, I think it was successful in doing what it set out to do, and it set up... A, a whole franchise really that we have now enjoyed 18 ish 13 13 games so um i can't call it a bad game and i don't want to call it a bad game i just want to make that clear i don't want to call it a bad game i don't think that it is um there are a lot of things i don't like about it but i i don't think that it was a bad game what do you think max does our does our establishing premise hold out uh, I think so. Um, I mean, good or bad is highly contextual, right? Um, and subjective. Uh, I think I think this game is good in the same way that Steamboat Willie was good. <laughs> right? Like it was it was breaking new ground. It was you know, <laughs> uh, blowing minds at its time. Um, and it feels like if you were to show show it to a kid, uh, you know, 11 years old or something, and they don't care about historical context, they only compare it to what they experience now. They'd be like, no, that's that's crappy. Why are you showing me this? Um, that may not actually be true for Steamboat Billy, but I think it would be true for Adventure of Link. Um, <laughs> and that's fine, right? It's this is it, it would be a game out of time to try to show it to people right now uh, and have them compare it to i don't know the new god of war that just came out or whatever it's just it's not the same thing it's not the same audience it's not the same goals but when it came out it was amazing um and i i can't call something bad just because it's no longer in its original context well and and even even among peers of its time i mean this is still for all intents and purposes a relatively polished product i mean when you go back to the nes and the snes you've got some broken ass broken games on those systems oh yeah it was surrounded by hot garbage everywhere (laughs) except for in some other nintendo made games (laughs) right and a few like standouts from like square enix or well square and enix were separate companies at the time but you know whatever you get the point um a lot of real bad stuff on the nes Yeah. (laughs) yeah yeah and this is not that no, I and I and I agree. I think that uh, I, I think that our our premise holds true, and if it holds true now, then I think we can pretty confidently say that we're not going to feel differently, you know, on any other game that we're going to play uh, throughout the rest of us doing this. But like, I, I think I, I agree with y'all. It is definitely not a bad game. It's not a great game. It's not an all timer to me. It's not enduring in the same way that a lot of others are. Um, when you look at the Legend of Zelda before it, and then a Link to the Past after it, those games are timeless in certain ways. You know, um, they like even the Legend of Zelda is timeless in a variety of ways, like you mentioned earlier, Max. And I just don't think that this game is ever going to be that. Um, it, it is a it is a good game. It is a fine game. It is not a spectacular game it's not a wonderful game um 
but yeah, definitely, definitely would not call it bad. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to move us to a couple listener questions that we've got on discord that I think supplement this discussion pretty well. Um, number one is this what, is going to be a two and a half hour episode, by the way. Yeah. I mean, it's that, that just seems like the most appropriate way to end the adventure of life <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> what enemy was too strong and which, which of them were too weak? And like, did that affect your enjoyment of combat in this game? Max, do you have any, do you, do you, do you have one? That you could uh, put forward for that? No, I don't have a strong answer offhand. Uh, thinking about it, if one of you wants to go. I mean, too weak is... I mean, no enemy is too weak. I'll no. take I'll take an easy kill anytime I can get it. I'll in this take game. the blue blots. Yeah, every day of the week. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, I, I think to me, too strong is still definitely just the blue iron knuckles, right? Like, yes. And I think I've said this before. A lot of that really just comes down to the areas of the game in which they make us fight these guys. You know? Yeah. Um, just man, there's nothing in the world that I hated doing in this game more than getting into. Of a low ceilinged room with one blue iron knuckle and that low ceiling takes up the entire stretch of the screen that I can see before me and knowing that I'm going to have to fight this guy while not being able to take advantage of like jump or whatever. Um, so yeah, I think that's definitely probably my answer. Uh, I don't think anything was harder to me than the blue iron knuckles. Um, yeah, I'm going to give an upvote on the blue iron knuckle. There. I do. I do have to give credit where credit is due, though. I found the majority of the boss encounters to actually be very fair and well designed. Yeah, I, I thought the boss encounters were pretty good. I thought the reusing of smack it in the head was uh, got a little tropish. But other than that, um, I, I did enjoy for the most part bosses. In yeah, this game. well, smack it in the head was the precursor to shoot it in the eye. Exactly. Like, <laughs> we've, we've been doing that for 30 years. Yeah, so no, like, it's, it's still around for sure. Um, I actually do also want to say that I thought the iteration of iron knuckles into bird knights in the final palace was kind of cool i actually enjoyed that watching them create a new enemy that was similar to an iron knuckle but different in mechanics yeah and, and i liked that yeah yeah uh max did you have anything you wanted to pitch in on that and it, it, it's okay yeah, if not i think i ultimately have the same answer you two do which is the the blue iron knuckles i mean they made me quit and start over on an entirely different version of the game uh <laughs> Yeah, that's when you know you're in rough shape. Um, so next one here that I want to call out is um, we already talked about kind of last week about the ending, whether or not it was satisfying. I think o overall we kind of think it, it, it was as good of an ending as it could be for a game of this era. Um, but uh, a good question here is would um, or sorry, could they have achieved more or less had this been a true top down like um Link to the Past or uh, Legend of Zelda instead of a uh, big overworld with intercutting on side scrolling. Do you think this game would have been better or worse for that? Well, so there's I don't know. That's a that's a complicated question. If you look at it from the perspective of could this same story have been told maybe more effectively in that format, then, yeah, sure. Why not? Like the exact same story beats could have achieved could have been achieved. Doing the same sort of overworld and dungeon style as the legend of Zelda and a link to the past and all the other ones after that. Mm -hmm. Like if, if you're just breaking it down in terms of like link has to go to seven or however many dungeons and deposit crystals after beating a boss, then I mean, yeah, hell yeah. Why not? Like, <laughs> um, like that's what we're doing in all these other games. So yes, we could have done that. Um, 
I think that uh, the other side of this question is, is it even the same game anymore? Yeah. If it's if, if, if you're not side scrolling combat, if you don't have this, the, the overworld is a separate thing to me um, because to me, that was the most extraneous and easily like dismissible part of this whole game. Yep. So I don't know how you solve for that in a side scrolling <laughs> manner. Right. Because the only other way you can do this is like the overworld is like it was in Zelda one, but then the dungeons are side scrolling. But then that makes no sense because you're doing combat in the overworld. And right. so why wouldn't you be doing it the same way in the dungeons? Um, so, yeah, I think you just have a whole different game if you make this into a top down. Like yeah. it, it's it's not the same game anymore. I, so I think the the interesting angle is maybe if you're like, OK, you keep a lot of the same elements and the same goals, right? This, the goal of it being a sword fighting game, the goals of having uh, the structure of an overworld with dungeons that are separate screens, uh, towns, um, maybe more or less the same story. Like if you try to keep a lot of those things and then redesign it as a top-down game, arguably it's kind of the same. There's some of the same bones to it. Um, and I think they would have, not achieve their goals um, as well with the same goals. I don't think those goals would have been achieved as strongly with a two top down 2d game because the, because the whole thing is that the ability to, to, to do vertical combat is essential to their stated purpose in this game. Right. I think that if they had, if they had made it 2d, they would have had to have different goals. And then at that point, it's just a very different game. Yeah. So or, sorry. I've talked. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're totally right. And and kind of on the back of that, I know Lyndon and I talked a little bit last week about if we were to redesign the game as a remake, like what what would be changed? And I know most of our answers were around reduction of the famine economy and, uh, you know, a, a gentler uh a gentler uh, skill creep curve. Um, but Max, I just want to let you have an opportunity to kind of put anything here like if you were to remake this game, keeping it true to the original as much as possible, like are there any big points you would change and what, what would those be? Yeah, uh, so for Zelda 1, I thought it couldn't really be, made, re, be remade without becoming a very different game. It was just too simple, too focused. It was already like basically the best version of what it was. Yep, agree. Um, Zelda 2... I have a totally opposite opinion where I think it could be it could keep the same bones and same gameplay and same structure and be a lot better with polish and better visuals and just a lot more love poured into it. So I actually do think this could be remade and it would benefit a lot for it um, in a whole bunch of ways. Biggest one, of course, being difficulty balancing. Um but like I think you could expand this game in a lot of ways. Like you could you could add side quests, you could add more NPC dialogue, you could do stuff like setting towns as your new respawn points when you get a game over instead of going all the way back to North Castle. Like there's yeah. just endless details you could do like that while keeping the same game at its core. And it's tough for me because I've been thinking about this a lot too, and I agree with you, Max. And at the same time, Every time I think, how would I remake this game? Like if I was going to do it and it was going to be the same basic sort of game experience as this one. I'm not trying to make it into a top down. I'm not trying to do this or this or that. I'm making it a side scrolling combat game with an overworld, right? Um, I just keep coming back to, would that basically just be like 
a Zelda Metroid, you know, which this kind of is. But like my recent experience with Metroid Dread, especially, Mm -hmm. has got me thinking a lot about the ways in which like that style of game, uh, you know, could be there's there's some there's some polishing of combat ability and movement in Metroid Dread versus what you can do in like Super Metroid, for instance. And I think similar principles could be applied to this game. You know, I think that it would it would be it would still be pretty different. Right. Because you would you it would not be one persistent side scrolling world. I think you would need to find some way to retain the overworld to side scrolling temple balance. And then the combat itself, I think, would still be a bit more. It would be slower paced than what you find in a Metroid title. Right. So I don't think it would just be Metroid, but Zelda. Yeah. But I do think if there ever was to be a remake for this game, and I don't think that there will be, but hey, who knows? Um, I, I think that it would take a lot of learnings from Metroid Dread in its combat sections. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think it could still have a pretty distinct flavor, even with that being the case. Yeah. Um, so last one here, while I go turn the lights back on, I'll let you guys wax philosophical about this one, is uh, what is something about the game that you found yourselves enjoying more than you expected? Yeah, there's a couple things. I mean, the biggest one is the combat, right? Like I, by the end of the game, I was actually enjoying the combat a lot. Um, and the uh, the maneuvering in combat. And I didn't think didn't really know that that was going to happen because it doesn't feel, it didn't feel amazing when I first started. Um, but once I got used to it, it was a lot of fun. So that was surprising and uh, serendipitous. Uh, and then I would also say the world of Hyrule. Um, I didn't expect to be as happy with this kind of no gameplay overworld structure that it has as I, I ended up feeling like it was actually okay. Um, and did a lot of cool stuff for the series because it existed. Um, so like, that's another, another example. Will you, uh, will will you restate the question real quick, Matt? Yeah. What was something that you found yourself enjoying more about this game than you thought you would? So I already alluded to this a little bit. Um, the uh the combat learning curve was something that i definitely enjoyed a little bit more uh i think that even though it's definitely still true that combat is not what i come to zelda games for in and of itself i think that in this situation uh it was something that i had a a good time sinking my teeth into you know and i found that to be surprising i think when i got into this game at the beginning i was expecting to write it off as a failure and something that I didn't enjoy simply because it was side-scrolling, and that was not what I come to Zelda for. But I do think that the side the side-scrolling combat um, system did have some legs, and I did enjoy interacting with it. Um, it, it was definitely not like a toss it in the bin sort of feeling uh, that I thought I was going to have. Uh, and in addition to that. I really think that, you know, again, I was not expecting any any cool story out of this game. I was really not expecting to to enjoy the narrative at all. And uh, and I and I did, you know, like I I will now I, I, I can now comfortably put the story of this game and slot it into the overarching lore of Zelda 
and like enjoy thinking and speculating about it in the similar way that I do other games in the series. And I think mm-hmm. that's that's a big deal, you know? I mean, like we we one of the big reasons that we keep coming back to this series is because it's fun to try and like uh hypothesize about the lore and to speculate about the ramifications of like timeline and all that stuff and uh and I think that this game gives us plenty of fuel to add to that conversation. Um and you know, that's that's a win. I put that in the in the win column in a big way. For sure. I think for for me uh I ended up enjoying um I enjoyed the spell system more than I thought I would. Uh, admittedly, as I've already stated, not as much as um, items, but uh, I thought the spells were implemented pretty well. Passive buffs to your combat ability are, are pretty neat. Um, Lyndon, I think your point about uh, just the the lore being actually impactful to the overall story of Zelda in general is, is pretty cool and not something I expected to see happen from... Uh, this era of game and and I don't even really think it was something that the Legend of Zelda can say outside of just being the first um, I think Adventure of Link makes a lot more uh, strides in uh, lore implication than Legend of Zelda does just by nature of what it introduces the nature of the Triforce the nature of Link the naming of Zelda the like it, it goes into a lot of those things that become staples throughout the series so uh, you know have to definitely give it props there and I definitely did find myself enjoying the side scrolling a lot more than I thought and I have to honestly give a little bit of credit to Metroid Dread for prepping me to enjoy this type of game this type of combat because i have not played a lot of side scrollers outside of metroid dread and um so like going into it it wasn't nearly as off-putting as it could have been having had that experience so um what you said about like could zelda could you just have like a metroid-esque zelda game i think there's there's a space for that somewhere and i wouldn't be opposed to playing that and um you know i'm there the big takeaway from this episode is that Metroid Dread is great and you should all play it. Metroid Dread is so good. It's a phenomenal game. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, um, that is uh, hold on. I think we have one is that more. Yeah. Yeah. Nope, that was it. That was uh, that was our listener questions for today. Much appreciated to everyone who wrote in with those. I know, uh, you know, I think that I think that the community has really been enjoying the conversation around this game uh, and, and really been enjoying the the wide variety of like of takes and opinions and everything. And uh, and I, I, I love that. I just love that. Honestly, now that we're kind of at the end of season six particularly at the end of Adventure of Link. I love the the variety of conversation that we've been able to have around this game. I, I think that it's it's truly been some of the most fun podcasting we've been able to do so far because some things like, you know, Ocarina of Time and Breath of the Wild and all these, like, you know, it's it's still very fun to talk about those games, but it's all sort of kind of like a given that, that they're amazing and yeah, wonderful and like we have known, glowing things to say. Yeah, yeah, they're a known quantity for all of us, right? Um, and that's not to say that it's not worthy to kind of like break down why that is, but this game gave us something very different, which was an opportunity to really dig into, um, you know, as Max, as you said earlier, something that is considered to be the black sheep of this series. 
And I think it's been really great to have a nuanced discussion about it, right? Like it's easy to come on here and say, I don't like this. I don't like that. It's a lot harder to dig into why don't I like that? Or why does this not work in today's world? But it did work back then. Like it's 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 the ability and the breadth that our community has kind of given us to dive into these topics that has been really awesome for this season in particular is looking back at some games that are maybe didn't age as well or, you know, things that we don't like about them and being able to have a discussion about that instead of just the 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 statement of I don't like or I do like, like getting into the meat of the the tension points there is really what has created probably our longest season yet. Uh, as far as like as far as a uh, amount of game to play versus amount of pod that was created like uh, like there's just so much here to talk about because it's important to give context to that stuff, because as we have always stated, is we want to be as objective as possible about these games. And we still don't believe that any bad Zelda game has ever been made. So, um, yeah, it's important yeah. to talk about that stuff. Yep. Max, do you have anything else that you want to say about Zelda 2 before we kind of tie this episode up and, uh, you know, <laughs> go on our merry way and fire up our Wii U's to play Wind Waker? Or I guess you're playing it on GameCube. But. <laughs> uh, only that, it, trying to imagine a world where this was the foundation all the future games learned from more than Zelda 1. Oh, God. It's a very interesting and different world that's that what, we probably don't have time to dig into. No, right no, 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 no. But that's what I was going to say earlier. I was when I was like, I have a thought and I want you to remind me and I forgot to do that. But anyway, that so I, I, my whole thing is, do you think that this game is looked back on more favorably if A Link to the Past is not the version of Zelda that kind of went forward after this? Right. Like. Because basically after this game, they had two versions of Zelda to choose from. You could you could go left or right. You know, you could go you could you could continue your series in the vein of Zelda one or you could continue it in the vein of Zelda two. And if it had gone the other way, I don't know, like you're right. That's so hard to like hypothesize about. That's like such a, you know, (laughs) like, I mean, who, who can even say? But like. I don't know. I I just think it's so tough for me because so many of my opinions about this game really are rooted in what Zelda games after this did and why I love those games, you know? Yeah. Like the sort of people who would be doing a podcast looking back on it would be people with a totally different taste. Like (laughs) it may uh, not be us. (laughs) Like everything, everything about the context that we'd be looking at it now would be different. Um, We'd be nostalgic about different things. We'd be probably different people. We'd, I mean, maybe the Zelda series would have died out 10 years ago. Like, I don't know the F zero and Metroid franchises did. Uh, I mean, Metroid came back, but you know, like maybe that's a world where the Zelda series isn't, uh, you know, industry defining over and over again, like it actually was. Like, there's so much, so much different about it. Um, yeah, it's an interesting. Yes, it, I think the the long standing answer is yes. People would look on it more favorably because it wouldn't be a black sheep. It would be the start. Yeah, it's an interesting thought exercise, if nothing else. And uh, yeah, I mean. That that's all it ever will be because because we 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 went right instead of left and the the rest of the Zelda series went a completely different direction and I for one am thankful for that but anyway 
Well, this has been a, a super fun discussion, y'all. I mean, seriously, I knew it was going to be. I am very, very happy that, uh, for one, I'm very happy that we're not playing these games in chronological order because if we had, then we would have started this towards the very front and we would not have had quite as many established recurring guests to like come on and have these incredible conversations about it. Like I'm very happy that we're playing this game now and that we have all, all these great folks that, you know, uh, that we, that we know have got great nuanced perspectives to come on and like add to that conversation. So really, I, you know, I think, uh, we've got one more episode left in season six next week. We're going to do a bonus episode with, uh, you know, uh, some returning favorites, uh, where we talk about, um, where we kind of like put a cap on our thoughts on the eight bit era of Zelda, but you know, this is the end of the main run of season six. And I I just want to say that I've thoroughly enjoyed it. This has been one of the more enjoyable podcast seasons we've done. Yeah. Like I I don't think I love the games as much obviously (laughs) they've fallen to the bottom of our ranking but as far as quality of discussion volume of discussion um quality of guests which are as always phenomenal we are just supremely blessed with amazing guests that we have on here and um you being one of those max of course and uh I think that this has been really a standout season for us as podcasters and content creators. And and I'm very glad that we're here now. And I'm also very proud to now say that I am in the, those Legion of Zelda uh, people who have played these two games and beaten them. And uh, I could not say that before. So, yep. Um, really at the end of it all, I'm glad to have had this experience and glad to have been doing this podcast for this experience. Absolutely. So y'all ready to play some Wind Waker? I am so ready to play some Wind Waker. (laughs) (laughs) Can't wait. Oh God, I'm so jacked. Uh, yeah, we, we've already started lining up guests and scheduling all those episodes. So yeah, season seven is going to be a banger and I just can't wait. Well, I think what you said season six, it's season seven. Oh, damn it. Yeah, season seven is going to be – well, season six was a banger. Season Season seven will be yet another banger. (laughs) We're just – we're lining (laughs) up the bangers here. Uh, No, yeah, I I can't wait. It's going to be a great time. Max, seriously, thank you so much for coming back on. Uh, Honestly, like having you on the Rank and Recap episodes for these two most historic of Zelda titles has added a lot just because of your like wealth of knowledge around, you know, developer like attitudes and goals and like the historical knowledge that you have. So uh, we, we really appreciate you coming on um, to kind of help us round out our thoughts on these games. Yeah, I've been, I I mean, I have loved both these recap episodes. They've been a blast to guest on. Um, I'd like taking this broad view over these games. So, so thanks for having me again. Absolutely. And of course, everyone knows this isn't the last time you'll be hearing from Max Nichols. He's going to come back on to talk about Wind Waker. It's going to be a great time. Of course, we're going to have many more guests to come on and talk about that game. Uh, some returning favorites who haven't been on in a while. Talk to Kylie Parker today. She's going to come on. It's going to be a great time. Woot woot. Love it. All right. Well, now uh, we we are officially over the two and a half hour mark. So I think that that means it's time to wrap this thing up and get out of here. Does that sound about right to you, Matt? It sounds about right. Let's do it. Cool. Uh, Max, real quick before we get out of here, I think everyone already knows. But uh, just in case somebody's jumping on this podcast 
in this episode for the first time. If that's you, go back and listen to more of them. Uh, but uh, go ahead and, yeah, just let everyone know where they can follow you and uh, give a quick plug to Hyrule Interviews. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, uh, were you asking me to, to tell people where to find me? Yes. <laughs> so I guess yeah, yeah. for me too. All of the above. Uh, yeah, so I run HyruleInterviews.com, which is a database of quotes and interviews for with every person who has ever worked on a Zelda game. That's the goal. I don't actually have an interview for everyone yet, but uh, I've got you know several hundred interviews in the database and several hundred quotes, and I keep adding more over time. Um, and a lot of this historical information that I share in the podcast comes from just reading all this stuff and remembering a lot of it. Uh, so you can find us on Twitter or at HyruleInterviews.com. Excellent. Definitely go give that a look. Uh, it adds some great context. It's uh, it's a great source of research, and uh, there's a lot of interesting nuggets to be gleaned there. And, of course, it's ever-expanding, so definitely follow Max on Twitter for as long as Twitter continues existing, I guess. Um, <laughs> Elon, <laughs> thank you so much. Ugh, man, it's, <laughs> it's rough out there right now, y'all. But, um, yeah, go, go give that a follow and just uh, keep up with his ongoing efforts to catalog as many developer thoughts as he uh, as he can dig up. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for today. Let's go ahead and get out of here. If you enjoyed today's show and you would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it's not a problem. Five-star Apple podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show. That makes us very happy, Hylians. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at sacredrealmspod for updates on the podcast and for behind-the-scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with a bonus episode rounding out season six talking about our final thoughts on the 8-bit era of zelda games of course we always love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels uh both the legend of zelda and the adventure of link uh can be played in a variety of places they can be played on the nintendo nes the nintendo nes mini they can be played in a variety of e-shops they can be played on the nintendo switch online service which is the version that matt and i were playing real quick note as well like we've been mentioning, next game we're playing is going to be The Wind Waker. If you want to go ahead and start playing that game in advance of our new season, that can be played, unfortunately, in only two sort of three places uh it can be played on the gamecube it can be played on the nintendo wii u in its hd remaster version uh or of course if you have access to emulation software uh you can run it on you you know your steam deck or wherever uh which uh actually a lot of people i gather are doing unfortunately it's not out on the switch and so we're mentioning it here because we realize that uh some of y'all who want to play along with us may need a little extra runway to secure a way in which to play it and we wish you the best of luck in that endeavor uh yeah it's rough out there for people who want to play (laughs) a a few of these zelda games this is the first one that we're not going to be able to play on a handheld system like in bed yeah we're gonna have to do some actual tv time (laughs) so uh, (laughs) yeah i'm gonna have to prep my girlfriend for uh hey next time you're over i might be playing wind waker on the tv so you can't just watch netflix while i play zelda sorry Uh, that's okay it's gonna be a great (laughs) it'll be a thing and i'm very excited for it because i've been looking forward to playing this game it's kind of well known at this point that i have not actually ever played the wind waker all the way through i'm very much looking forward to my first experience with this game gonna be a great time we'll get into that in the next few weeks but in the meantime may your hearts be full may your arrows never miss we'll catch y'all next week 
Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel and Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameShops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences.